0: Morning Project presents. And we are now 35 days removed from our first episode of the Generic Video Game Podcast. So it's a pleasure to be back here for episode two on a lovely Sunday evening here. I, uh, was, I was
1: wondering if you were going to let me have that name or not. Generic Video Game Podcast.
0: I would say at this point... Uh, because I wasn't sure you were going to let
1: me have it. Hmm. <laughs> you could be honest here. That's fine. No, I I, th- like th- I think for because... now it's
0: fine. We can always take fan suggestions. At, uh you can hit us up at twenty four bit aje or at picoeri p i k o e r i on Twitter. But uh, yeah, right now we are gvgp until further notice.
1: The the reason the reason and and maybe one day I'll vote it, That's fine. But the reason I like it is I like. Podcast names that you're not gonna forget, because I I tend to kind of worry if if we call ourselves like uh, I don't know what what do you call podcasts like Rockin Podcast Zone, you know, or or Game X plosion or something like that, you know, that that it kind of like it gets lost among all the other names that are out there. Like there's a lot of Action Button Insert Coin. Uh, uh, lost levels joystick jihad I don't know whatever they're <laughs> called um, so that was like kind of like my my thought is is I mean we I just I just named that for the first episode because I just didn't know what to call it you know um, but I kind of like that idea because then you hear that name and it stands out and you're like okay that I know exactly what podcast that is
0: from my perspective I'll say this uh, you know I'll, I'll meet you halfway generic video game podcast is almost uh, a unique play on itself in that each respective word in that name isn't anything uncommon. Uh, While it's very basic, it's also memorable. I personally do like unique or fun names, yet simultaneously from a this is not for business, but how my brain has worked in the past with other endeavors is that, as I've suggested to previous uh, co hosts, when looking at a web URL or looking at a podcast name, I always felt to take a name or two or two names and put them together that are very common. So, for example, I'm going to give you an example from the past. Okay. Videogames.com, dot com, you figure, got sucked up eons ago. Sure. But in a magical world, if it wasn't taken, well, video dot com or video video games podcast, arguably, would be the easiest thing to remember. May not be the hippest or coolest name, but for whether it be for marketing, clicks, hits, that's, you know, I dare say that would be the ideal name. Another one pizza. Well, pizza dot com, as we know, that URL went up for sale years ago fifty, a hundred K, that was taken up probably in the early mid nineties. So when I used to do the now defunct site, video Pizza dot com, I came up with that name because I took two of the most common words or terms and just merged them. Sure. Whereas and I was told also that my train of thought for that was actually a good thing, and there are people in the past that have regretted picking X, Y, or Z names, whether it be for their URL or show, because the thought process behind that was either easier or more beneficial. So I always remember that. So, so in a way, with that train of thought, generic video game podcast kind of uh, meets that criteria. Whereas, you know, there are four words with that; it kind of meets that that little weird, quirky criteria of mine you know
1: we just call ourselves generic pizza and, that's a podcast. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking well so generic pizza would be like like pepperoni right Cause that's that's the most generic because i mean i i even think more than just cheese by itself i think pepperoni has to be the absolute most generic pizza you can get
0: <laughs> right
1: So, um but i mean like like look to me to me, to be fair you know my other podcasts are warning a huge podcast and the nichiest podcast ever so you know i don't I have this weird thing about naming, obviously.
0: See, now, from a passionate – from a a gamer's perspective or an insider, I love those names. Like, Warning a Huge Podcast is awesome to me because, obviously, the first memory it triggers is that from the Darius series. Right. You know, Warning a Huge Battleship is approaching fast. Right. Now, that's an absolutely – if you were to do that whole term, that's a nightmare in terms of a URL or to remember – but I remember, I remember the very first time I came across warning a huge podcast online and saw the lo- logo. And I was like, oh my god, this is so awesome.
1: It, it, but I mean, yeah, the, the, the original cover art does have the entire thing set out. <laughs> warning a huge podcast is approaching fast. Like if you look – I'm trying to think of at what, what point it was. But there was I think maybe like around episode six or so when we got when we, we got our new cover art. So before that, if you look at the old cover art, it, it has that whole entire thing set out. right?
0: So – so, I mean, that's – you know, that's – the argument we can make there is catering to a specific audience. You know, I dare say that would probably not be a name or a term that Activision would like to, to work with.
1: Well, I <laughs> – are, are you expecting Activision to be sponsoring us? <laughs> do you have you, plans I don't know about? If <laughs>
0: you want me to make you laugh? We had, as you know from the, the other podcast, i partaken in Double Plus Good Games. We had over forty, fifty plus guests on over the span of four years. And there was one point we were very close to having someone on from Activision. But I'll be very I'll be very honest. I don't know if they listened to a couple episodes or just whatever, they checked out the site, but they politely declined and said that they felt that this wasn't the the Ooh. show for them. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. I'll tell you another behind-the-scenes anomaly. This probably dates back to October 2010 or – 20. yeah, no, it's probably October 2010. I had everything prepped, and we were right on the cusp of getting – and who this would have been, I, I swear to you, I don't know, and I dare say it would have been from the Sega side. But we were gearing up to do an episode promoting Vanquish, and in the 11th hour, and I, for reasons I swear I don't know, fell apart.
1: Hmm.
0: So I, actually I have a theory as to what happened there. But that actually comes back to the former team that I worked with for Double Plus, uh, an old alumni member. So, but that's all theory. So, yeah, whatever. We were very close to promoting uh, Vanquish.
1: To be fair, though, I mean, you know, I, I work for a game magazine and we've had times where companies have at the last minute been like, yeah, we're actually not going to do it after all. Um, so, I mean, that just happens. And it, it, it always – it's always a pain in the ass when it happens because you, you have plans to do that, you know, or, or – you're, you're just looking forward to it or whatever, and at the last minute, they can just be like, yeah, we're not going to do that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's that's that's fair. It's a fair uh, statement. You know, you never know, you know. And for as much uh, Sony bandwagoning and in Japan gaming promoting I do, I will tell you one last bit of irony. You know, one of the companies that was, uh, I have to admit, was a pleasure to work with and I dare say gave us... When I say a little bit of money, it wasn't to buy us off. It was literally a small bit of money, and it was used to buy our previous LLC and get some business-related stuff down. So maybe it was a couple hundred bucks, of which I never saw, technically. But uh, Microsoft.
1: I, I have to say that um, I, I don't want to get too far into things, Yeah, knowing what I know. But Microsoft is actually really – can be really good to work with, um, and it, it is nice because, look, you know, you know how much I love Japanese companies and everything. Right. Right? But they are a pain in the ass. And it is, it is always a pain, too, when, um, you know, the company like Sony or Nintendo or any of these where they have the American division, the Japanese division, the European division, you know. And it has to go through different channels. And especially if it has to go to Japan at all, that can right. always be really rough. Um, but, you know, having Microsoft kind of be headquarters in America... Having everything go to that division. It's, it's they're They it can be really nice to work with. And they are really good about getting you what you need in certain ways to, to get coverage of their games. So,
0: yeah, I would have to agree. Yeah. I, I think at the time it was for promotion of Halo Reach. So, uh, but yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, you know, it always makes it easier as well. And, and this is going to sound so, so rudimentary. You know, and you speak the same language. Yeah. You know, when you speak in English, you're going through one avenue instead of three. You know, and it's not right. a disrespect or culture. You know, when you go on that route, living on the West Coast or the Pacific Northwest, uh, it does make a difference.
1: Yeah. No, and it's um, – yeah. I, I mean, no, seriously, because just the dealings I've had with, with Japanese companies, just having that same language can be huge. And, and even if you get things translated um, – things always get lost in translation. And the funny thing I always notice is like, you know, when I do interviews with somebody who's Japanese and I do the setup for the question that I want to ask, and there's, you know, I I always, if if I say something, it's very, I'm specifically saying it for a reason and I want to have that mentioned as part of the question, you know. Uh, But it's always funny for me to sit there and listen to how they translate my question, and I can tell when they've cut like half of it out and they're just asking like the main portion oh wow, and it's frustrating, but I think part of it is just like they're they're kind of more used to this okay what's the what's the direct question versus is there a little bit of story behind the question where you know i, I if I put story behind the questions, it is specifically to call up certain thoughts in their head about what I'm asking them, you know. So it, it, is, it is frustrating when you get even just a little thing like an interview where you go to somebody who, who, because they can't speak your language, you have to go through a translator, and the quality of the translator is just that, that's, I mean that's so important to how good of an interview you, you get. Um, you know I've, I've had people who we had great translators, like like uh, one who's really good is uh, Her, um, Harada, the guy who does Tekken. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, because he has there's this there's this white guy who works and I I'm I'm am totally spacing on his name at the moment. I know
0: exactly who you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and so he he works for Namco and he is always around Harada. and so he's always the one who translates for him. Um, and he's just like you know he he's he's not like because a lot of times you get the translator who is either they just found somebody in the company that can speak both languages and it's very obvious that that they're just somebody in the company who can speak both languages you know and and they don't appreciate the nuances of translating or you have a PR person who their goal is to still ask what you asked but reword it in a way that is just the most question friendly to the person that you're talking to
0: mm, to try and to try and uh, get an answer that's that would be on the back of the box
1: yeah yeah um, but so something like the guy, and that's how I get him, I apologize to him, not that he's listening, but I apologize to him for forgetting his name, but he, he's actually really, really good because, uh, he's, he's great. And he just, and he's just kind of like hanging out. And so, you know, he's like, and he appreciates the fact that you are asking, you know, questions and you want to know this information and stuff. He actually cares about the game because he's part of working on it. So he's really good. And then, um, there's some other guys that are actually really, really good. So it's, it's always, it's always tough when you get somebody who's not a good translator, because you had that language problem, and the quality of the interview can just be so different, uh, depending right. on who's translating.
0: Right. Hmm.
1: Because you I mean you can ask a question like, like, uh, you know, let's say, let's say, you know, I, I, for example, recently, I, I interviewed uh, uh, Inafune, you know, and let's say I'm saying. You know, uh, you, you, were, you were there and you were working on Mega Man and you're making all these different bosses. And over time, you know, like the, the needs of the game changed, the technology changed, but also like like what you wanted to have players do change and everything. And so through all of that, how do you think the, the enemies really grew and, and changed over the course of the first six games you know, and what really went into, from your emotional side, to, like, what really went into the designs, and as you're going on, you're, you, don't, you can't use, like, Fireman and Iceman anymore. So, you know, like, how are you coming up with these ideas for uh, how the bosses would evolve over time? Like, let's say that's my, my question to him, you know. And then the question gets translated as, um, how, how are the bosses different? from when you, you know, or, or like, like, like how, how do the bosses change over time, you know, like like that's the entire question asked, you know, or, right. or how, what's hard about making a boss, you know, and then, and then he starts going to like a very technical side and you're like, that's not at all the question I was asking, you know, Right he's answering a completely different question than the one I was asking. So it's, it is that, not that anybody cares, but it's, 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 um, that's one of the, because the, I love doing interviews, but it's always one of the rough parts is getting the question you want asked through the translator as so, my gigantic aside.
0: Right, right. Uh, you know, and, and all of those little things add up in the questions to help differentiate what you versus other sites or other people may ask. So I can see, you know, I can see where you're coming from on that. Yeah. Now, sp- now speaking of KG Inafune of Mega Man fame, you have quite the timing in bringing this gentleman's name up.
1: Hmm.
0: Because moments before coming on, uh, preparing for a generic video game podcast, as I was diligently uh, pecking away at our topic at hand this evening, which is uh, E3, CES, big shows of yesteryear, then versus now, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I've been plugging away at it for hours on end.
1: Which, by Did- the way, <laughs> which, which at this moment, until listeners actually hear what we're going to say, which I don't, I don't even know how it's going to go. But that—that that sounds like you know, like. Um, you know, like income tax and you, the podcast about finances and things like that. Like, just, I don't know, like offhand, that sounds like the worst podcast in the entire world. I was just talking about trade shows, um, but it's, it's going to be fun or not, but it'll be fun, but maybe not. I don't know. We're, we're going to see. You know, cause I was thinking about that. I'm just like, like, you know, cause we're not going to talk about like what games we saw, but just like the conventions overall. And this is going to be the worst podcast we've ever done, or it's going to be a lot of fun. I don't know. Yeah.
0: It is actually quite challenging when I. Uh...
1: <laughs> so I I think we made a terrible decision for our second podcast because this could actually kill us on our second. Act. You know, like you know how there's always like the sophomore curse. Like you do your first thing and people like it, and then you have to do a follow up. This is right here. This is this is where we destroy ourselves with our second podcast. So, but anyway, I'm sorry. You were saying Inafune.
0: Did you see? Uh, Mighty number no. nine is going to go through a second round of kickstart. Yes.
1: What the hell is up with this? Like, I I I don't know. Like, I've I've lost all faith in Kickstarter. And and why I mean, here's the thing, and this is the same thing that happened with uh what's his guy the Smarmy guy. Um
0: Oh, you're talking about Tim Schaefer? Yeah,
1: Tim Schaefer. Um uh, He he gets way, way more money than he needed for the game that he asked for, for the game. Right. And this, this isn't, this isn't like, I mean, cause okay, look, if it's, if it's like Tim Schmo, who's making Tim's RPG and he asks for money and he's never made a game before in his life. And he thinks you just sit down and type on your keyboard for 10 hours and a game comes out, you know, um, if, if he's like, Oh crap, gaming, game creation is way harder than I expected. I need more money. I can see that when you have somebody who has been in this industry for like years and years and years, like they should know what they need. And, like, Tim Schaefer was like, okay, you guys gave me, like, a hundred times what I was asking for, but I ran out, so I can only release the first half of the game, you know? And it's like, WTF, and so with Inafune, he's now like, oh, uh, we want to put other stuff in the game, so we need more money. Like, but you got, like, millions of dollars past what you were asking,
0: Right, with Kickstarter and PayPal all-inclusive, they exceeded yes. $4 million. To their credit, if they're to be believed, and they're on the up-and-up and telling the God's honest truth, they claim it's for extra content, I believe, that wasn't discussed prior, and some of the ideas coming from fan feedback is what's bringing this about. So they claim, even if this second Kickstarter were a failure, the game would still release in its original promised form, spring of 2015
1: but okay okay so let's say anthony that you're gonna make a podcast right and you're like i need five hundred dollars to make this podcast i am gonna make six episodes of the podcast this is what i want to do with it i need 500 bucks right and at the end of the day you end up with five thousand dollars okay and then before you've actually released your first episode you come back and you're like well you know what i've been thinking I want to add some stuff to my podcast, so give me another, like, $1,000. So my question is, where did that 4500 bucks go?
0: I'm going to speak from the heart on this, and I completely agree, and I've had similar thought process. Let, let's use that analogy. Having done a podcast in the past for several years, partaking in this podcast, uh, which I feel is a privilege, you have a, a plethora of experience in the business. Uh, not to brag, but... I'm a quick learner. And there were a lot of ups and downs. I've done over a hundred some odd episodes elsewhere. By this point in time, you know what to expect. I, you know, I'm critical of myself. I listen to you know how I sound. I'm critical of how I sound, if I become long-winded, you perfect your craft. Or if you're someone that cares about what you're doing, you perfect your trade. That's all in the span of a couple years. When we're talking about let's say, KG Inafune or someone of Mega Man fame, someone who worked at Capcom for over 20 years has seen everything inside and out. Honestly, and I'm not just going to pick on him. This goes for Tim Schafer and others in the industry. It's embarrassing. I mean, it's like this isn't the first time I've done a podcast, but it would be as if I had never done one before. And like when, when someone is new or someone has to be trained on something and they don't know, that's all understandable. When you have over two decades' experience... I don't know what the excuse is there. You're exactly right. It's like, where did the money go? How was it mismanaged? And I'm going to go out on a limb and maybe talk out my rear end. You ready for this? When you see stuff like that happen to people like Schaefer or KG Inafune, you know what it makes me think from a business perspective?
1: Hmm.
0: And I'm just going to say this. Does this give credence as to why companies like Capcom or other publishers may have let them go? Right. You know, no. You know, now we're getting into the nuances of how do you act behind the desk? How do you utilize your time? Um, you, and look, if Mega Man One were the only game that this guy created, he would still have be validated to go in the video game history books. I mean, this. I mean, to create a game, to create a success, a property, a franchise—that's something I've never done. I, I can't imagine. But it's like. When you're, when you're with the big boys and you're with someone like a, a Capcom who both develops and publishes, but sometimes you're with a developer and you have to seek out a publisher for your project, you, know, you see things like this and it all starts somewhere. It's like, are these little things that add up to a major reason as to why maybe someone gets replaced, why they're looking for new talent, why they're looking for Western talent, uh, why certain projects can't be trusted for not meeting deadlines? I don't know. I mean, now it's weird because I look at it like the Kickstarter funders who are, quote, you and I, it's almost like now where the publisher or we're like now where the people that believe in their project, giving them the money that they've so desperately wanted that they're, you know, the, the, the company wouldn't give them. Now it's like we're the boss and it's like now we're seeing where's your money going and like it's almost like you're answering to us.
1: So I, I, I'm going to. I'm going to bitch at him, and then I'm going to defend him, and I'm going to bitch at him again. So, okay. So, the, the original Kickstarter, the goal of that Kickstarter was $900,000. And the Kickstarter ended up making $3.8 million. So, that is almost $3 million that they received. And that's even before any of that PayPal money. That's almost $3 million they received to do extra stuff, right? Okay. So now on the defensive side, they put up the stretch goals. And the stretch goals went all the way up to, like, $4 million. Um, and so they're, they're actually listing, like, okay, at 2.5, you get extra end stage and boss. At 2.7, beck and call. You know, at at uh, 3.3, you got the PS4 and Xbox One versions. So, I mean, so they, they went through and they... they specifically tell us where all that extra money is going to. And if they are now saying they want to do stuff beyond that, then technically, yes, they probably don't have the money to do it. They don't have the funds. uh, Because all the funds are already accounted for into what they're going to go into for the game. But then my other thing, going back to bitching, is if you got all this money to do all these extra features, why are you wanting to do more? This is the problem that Broken Age ran into. They had an idea for how they could make the game. They got all this money. So they said, okay, let's totally change what we're going to do. We're going to make it bigger and better. But when they did that, they then went over budget and didn't have the money for it. Um, So they need to just work on what they've promised and get this game out. And then if they want to do more, you know what? Make DLC after it's out. Right. That's fine. But just make make the game. Put the game out. Like don't put more stuff in there.
0: You know what it's almost like for another analogy? It's almost like – you know the saying, there's never enough money. And I'm talking in terms of just life. So like, you know, okay, so we'll use myself. We'll get personal. You know, I remember when it was like 15, 16, making 10, 15 grand a year tops, part-time job, going to school. Then you go, you know, you get a little older. Hopefully, you, you continue on with your work career. You you know you, you know I, I used to be like, boy, I, I wish if I could make twenty grand a year, I could do so much more. Then it goes, you know, you make twenty five grand a year, boy, I wish I could make thirty. You know, you're making 40, 45 grand a year. I wish I was making fifty or sixty. It's the type of thing where certain people, and, I, and I'm not judging because I'm certainly guilty of this. It's like you give some people five hundred bucks, they're gonna spend seven fifty. You give them a grand, they're gonna spend fifteen hundred. Right, you know it's almost like that type of thing you gave them, you gave them four million dollars to spend in five you know so, so so
1: so like I mean like okay, so one of the first things they wanted, they want to do stretch goal wise is they want full English voice yeah, which I mean, for one, I think that probably should have been part of the package in the first place agreed um but second i okay i mean i don't know if they care and that said so that, that could be d l c later on, you know like why. I don't, like why is it coming up now is what I don't understand. You know. And I and they're not saying what the other stretch goals are, but there's like, okay, we each want more money. Slacker total raised. <laughs> zero, Because zero. it's saying they have zero dollars for this new thing so far. But it's not really explaining like what they're asking for. But yeah, I don't I don't know. It's just it's
0: uh since we're on the kickstarter topic and not to to, you know keep this going forever but speaking of kickstarter speaking of the sophomore episode of doom uh taxes it makes me think of something i was watching recently within the last month and another exciting topic i was watching a youtube video uh which was put on by i dare say a lawyer in regards to copyright infringement I lead a very exciting life, Shidoshi. Yes. But it was fascinating, and here's why. Because it came up because it was in relation to artists in the industry, Comic-Con, properties, and and wrapping this all back around to our topic. On Kickstarter, I've seen stuff that's like Nintendo-related or what seems to be walking a fine line of Nintendo properties, uh, utilizing like old influence of publications or like art in the Kickstarters whether it be like a Nintendo Power type ordeal and what have you, I have no idea how they're getting away with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm not the guy. I'm not the person that's like, oh, I'm going to go report them. Hey, that's not my deal. But this is a serious topic with the advent of social networking or artists in the field, uh, developers. And uh, because I was talking to someone, and they'll remain nameless, someone who's uh, uh, very talented, And does his own work, goes to the shows and and does his own unique creations all on the up and up. And I'm like, we were talking about this and I'm like, damn, if it was that easy with someone like with your talent. I'm like, well, what the hell would stop you from doing art with like Samus or Link or Sonic? You know what I mean? That would be the greatest gig in the world with your, you know, your art direction to go to these shows and get the gaming audience. But it's not that easy. Yeah. You know? I, I don't know. There's a whole – to me, there's so, There's still some question marks. This. I think it's a learning process. Uh, I'll tell you a little secret. There's only two Kickstarters I've promoted so, or supported so far uh, out of my own wallet, and it's not because they're the only ones I truly believed in. It just came down to timing on personal finances, and they both ironically are book-related. So the the weird twist here is I've yet to actually support a video game-related – Kickstarter, and part of my own twisted reasoning on that is is that I think there are some awesome ideas out there. I'm sure I'm going to get Mighty Number no. Nine when it releases on the networks. That's no doubt. But I'm like, with the amount of games I currently have that I still can't, that I will never complete, I can't justify now supporting side projects of games like. Right. You. Is the, do you think like that as well? No. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's kind of the point I've gotten to is just the fact that like, because um, there are. A couple of games I, I was watching. I mean, because look, I I kickstarted two games on 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 the site, uh, Broken Age, because that was like the first really big gaming Kickstarter, you know. And so I kind of got swept up in that. Yeah, let's let's prove this can ha- actually work out and happen. And then I kickstarted uh, the Gianna Sisters remake, and I finally played Broken Age when I had to for work. And I've not touched Giant Sisters at all yet. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of like, you know what? There are games that I think I'm, I'm, I'm interested in and that I'm following, but I'm not going to kickstart them. I'll be like, okay, you know what? When, when, when they come out, I will play them then. I will think I'll, – I'll see what people say about them and I'll I'll think about buying them and play them because it's just it just – I think there's – I, I think it's almost like anything, like the indie section on Xbox 360 or whatever. I think there's like a 1% to 5% of things that are really great and that can really benefit. And then the rest is just, you know what? Either this is not going to happen or it's going to take way too long or they're going to need more money or the game's going to turn out like garbage or something. I just, like, I don't trust it at this point. Especially when, like, the one of the most successful Kickstarters of all time, gaming-wise, was the OUYA, and we've seen how that, Turned
0: out. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, so. what, a, what a crazy ordeal. What a crazy ordeal. Yeah. So. But uh, before, uh, before we proceed to head into our main topic, uh, you started off earlier with uh, Murdered Soul Suspect. I don't know if that part got recorded, but discussing that and your pleasure of going through that uh, pleasant surprise.
1: Yeah I, I was, uh, yeah, I was shocked.
0: You know, I always find it interesting from an insider's perspective and, and the, uh, what you get to experience you got to take a trip to see it behind the scenes a couple months ago in San Francisco, correct?
1: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm trying to think of when that was. Uh, I'm I thinking don't... maybe April. Was it that recently? Either
0: when, did the... The game,
1: when did the game come out? No, I guess it just came out pretty recently, didn't it?
0: Uh, I, I, I'm I'm thinking June, but I'm not, uh, I could be. Yeah,
1: yeah so I guess it was like earlier this
0: year. Let's see. Soul Suspect hit yeah, early first week of June.
1: Yep. So Yeah, probably like March or April or so. I think it was in between like um 'cause that was the point where like there was Dice and then GDC
0: and mm.
1: PAX Prime. You no, know, PAX East. So probably run that, that kind of time frame.
0: Did you have a good time going out there getting to see it or behind the scenes stuff or meet any people?
1: Yeah, it's always it's always um it's always interesting though, because it's it's literally one of those things where I go to the airport, uh, you know, so that's it. It's like a two hour ordeal driving down there, getting through security and whatnot. Get on a plane, spend like an hour on the plane to go to San Francisco, land, spend like the, the 40, 40 minutes to drive to where I need to go to, uh, be there for like two hours, and then just go right back to the airport, mm. fly back. And it's, 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 those are like the tough ones, you know. Um, the, the, the trips where you actually go somewhere and you stay in a hotel and you're there for a few days, like those, you can actually kind of relax a little bit and decompress and stuff. But these are always just tough because it's, it's, it's go to the airport, fly there, play a game, go back to the airport, fly home. And it's, it's, it can be tough to remember like what you've even seen at that point.
0: It's almost like the life of a rock star musician. When I hear things like that, or, you know, I've been to a few shows in the past, but this is much different for you. Your line of work. You know, I I'm just like people that travel for a living or do that stuff 4 or 5 times a week on the road or on a plane. I uh, I don't know how they do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's um you you do kind of get used to it. I mean, to be fair, I'm not like doing it a lot, but there are times when like every single month I'm going somewhere. You know, I mean, uh this month I'm going on San Diego Comic-Con and then next month I'm going to PAX Prime. Wow. And then the month after I'm going to TGS and there may be one or two other things in there um the 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 tough one for me was uh, and and look tough is relatively speaking but i mean i don't know if it was like so it wasn't last year so the year before last it had to have been is when i went to minsk in august and then
0: oh was that for world of uh tanks
1: World world of tanks yeah for their 15th anniversary and that was that was like a 21 hours of fly, flying time. Wow! Each way, and so I went there, and then the very next month I had to get back on a plane like two weeks later and fly to Japan. So, so that 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 can get kind of tough.
0: Here's another generic video game podcast exclusive in terms of my personal <laughs> life. You know, I've never flown outside the country, and I've only been within four states within the United States of America. So I got to tell you mentally I've I was very close to going to Japan in the mid 2000s I I had the money and I just I I didn't do it but one of the things that gets me especially as I get older is how the hell do you do 20 hours on a plane
1: yeah and and look then let me let me first say that I I feel incredibly lucky like one of the great parts about this job that I you know that I have is that I get to do these trips you know I mean on a regular basis I go to places like Las Vegas, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston. Um, I've been to New York a couple times now because of this stuff. You know, I've been to other countries. Um, it's you know, so I mean, I am very lucky, and I don't, I don't, I don't complain about that at all. I mean, in in terms of work wise, it it can be kind of tiring, but I think I'm lucky. Uh, but for the flight, the flight is like I'm. The good part about me is I can sleep on a plane, mm. so. I can I can just lay back and just conk out for for like four or five hours, wake up, have the meal, go back to sleep. You know, if if you can't, it's it's brutal because when and and I I had and if you listen to the podcast, for anybody who does, you you might have heard me say this before. But I I was lucky and cursed at the same time. So the first time I ever flew international. I was going to Japan and because of somebody wanting to change seats, they ended up bumping me up to business class and business class international is where as soon as you're getting in there, they're walking around with like orange juice and champagne. Oh. You know, um, these are seats that kind of lay, lay pretty far back. They had the little massaging things in the, in the chair. Um, you had a menu that you could, you you chose what you wanted to eat off of and stuff. It was it. So, so like my very first trip going to Japan, going international period, I was like, oh, this is, like, sweet. I can do this easily, you know? So <laughs> I'm in business class. Uh, flying back, it, it was hell. And <laughs> you you have it in your mind that if you're flying internationally, like, they have to give you, like, more room, right? I mean, that they just have to give you more room. But they really, like, don't give you that much more room. It's, it's if you ever get on a plane and you see kind of, like, the, the, the quote-unquote plus seats where you get, like, the six more inches of leg room, you know, right. uh, that's kind of like what an f- international flight is: is you have a l- little more leg room, and if you're lucky, your chair on both sides has armrests of its own versus a shared armrest. But um, no, international is brutal, and and if 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 you can't sleep, then it's tough. Like like for me, the hard part is I can't. Um, I get motion sickness very easily, so I can't. I can't play video games. I can't read. Oh, I on the plane? Yeah, I, I can't really watch movies or anything. Oh, that's
0: horrible news.
1: Yeah, so I can I can watch a little bit of like if they have like the in-flight movie like on on the the seat back. I can kind of watch that sometimes, um, but I can't I can't play games at all. I cannot read at all.
0: Oh, what a shame.
1: So it's basically me like sitting there like listening to podcasts or music or something.
0: God, here's a, I'm full of weird analogies tonight. You know that reminds me of a guy I used to work with, an Italian gentleman, an old boss of mine, and he couldn't eat Italian food. This is, ah. this is the same. This is like this yeah. is the ultimate gamer who can't game on yep. trips. Yep. So. Wow.
1: Not 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 a plane, not a car, and n- anything like that. So you
0: really, so you really got to be banking on falling asleep, or yeah.
1: Yeah, I had, to, I had to fall asleep or I just sit there and listen to podcasts the entire time.
0: Wow! Well, that's And
1: it. And when, it, when it's a short flight, it's not too bad. But when it, yeah, when it's like... I mean, because Japan, depending on which way you're going, it's typically like 9, nine to 10 hours once you really get taken. Like, I'm lucky now because I'm in L.A. Like, before when I lived in Nebraska, it was... You had, you know, like a four- to five-hour flight. Uh, probably like a four-hour flight to the coast. Maybe not even four, but like enough that it may it because you had like three. Let's say let's say three hours of flight, and then an hour or two between hanging out at the airport at first and kind of layover.
0: Right.
1: You know. So I mean that added that added that's where the four or five hours came from. It added like a four or five hour addition to whatever you're flying. So a nine hour flight was suddenly a fourteen hour trip. You know. Um, but now being in L. A. That that I can cut that out, but it's still said a good nine ten hours. So. <sighs>
0: Well. Wow. Mm. Well. I always but, find stuff like that interesting. That's that's the bull crap that I always worry about. Yes, you know.
1: But you know, uh, yeah, you I mean you definitely like you really have to get out of the country at some point because I mean it it, it really is a great experience to kind of leave America. And I mean, I've never been to Canada. I have never been to Mexico. So I've never, I've never been like the kind of the close foreign countries. But it it there is something very exciting when you get to a place. Well, it depends on who you are. But for me, it's very exciting when I get to a place where I just don't know anything. You know, like at this point, Japan is not foreign to me. You know, I, I can't even think about going to Japan as being a foreign country because I've been there just so many times now. Man, and I've lived there and everything, and I speak enough of the language. So I can survive. You know, so so going to Minsk was fun because it was. Totally a foreign country, you know. I I knew nothing. I knew nothing of the food, nothing of the language, nothing of the culture, nothing of the people. Um, and that's like just like I said, that's 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 a lot of fun to me. Is just to kind of get out and experience something that you just would never experience in America.
0: Uh, how did they take to Americans, if you don't mind me asking? Or were they were they p- polite or friendly? Well,
1: they they love our dollars, so <laughs> they were very friendly. Um, like it's. Uh, we were, we were driving, and it, is, it was funny because wherever you went, you, the prices were in. So it was the uh, Ukrainian ruble. Okay. So Ukrainian ruble or the euro or the dollar. And when we got there, um, we could exchange dollars for rubles, but you cannot exchange rubles for dollars mm. because they want the dollars. So they will not give you the dollars back.
0: Is it because it's more strength for them or like – Yeah, because I mean, it's, economically- it's, yeah,
1: it's, it's a way more stronger currency. So, wow. Um, I was uh, looking – in, in our hotel lobby, they had kind of these, these souvenir, the souvenir stand and I was looking for these little balls that they make there. And the lady was like, well, you can, you can buy them here. But the thing is if you go like – if, if you go outside and you get a taxi – you go, know, like, 15 minutes down the street, there's a market there, and you get the same dolls there for this this much less. She's telling me, and I'm doing it in my head, and it's, like, two or three bucks less. Right. And I felt bad, because I'm kind of, like, you know, like, lady, you understand, like, for me, that's way too much hassle for saving, like, two or three bucks, you know? <laughs> like, to them, that was, like, a pretty big price difference. Right. But to me, I'm, like, I can't, I can't, I can't just do that. I, I can't go out track down a taxi, talk him into taking me to a certain place, getting there and buying them there just to save like two or three bucks per doll. You know, like I, I can't do that. Um, so yeah, whenever we had like, we, we tipped a, one of our taxi drivers in like five bucks and dollars and he was just like blown away and he loved us. Um, <laughs> so it it was, it was like, I hate I hate saying this, but it's, it's just the truth. You know, like it was going there and, and feeling how much power your money had was kind of just like uh, it was. It was nice, you know. I mean, because I go to Japan, and, and our money is like not anything to them, you know. I'm like okay, you know, uh, a movie's like eighteen bucks dollars American, so it's, it's not like my my money's getting me anywhere in Japan, you know. But <laughs> over there, it was just like I'm like a king here with the money <laughs> I have. So it was really cool. Uh,
0: that's that's. Uh... That's quite the feeling to experience, I would imagine. You know what it must be like for the wealthy or the uh, upper upper class. Yeah,
1: and like I said, I, I feel bad because like I'm not I'm not like you know oh this 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 like third world country where they like farm dirt or something. Like I'm not right. like trying to look at them on in that kind of way. But right. it was just like I am the rich American coming in, like throwing <laughs> dollars around, you know. And it was a pretty cool feeling. And so yeah, you're like okay, I I can understand why. It feels good to be rich because when you're just buying something new and you're like the prices are so low to you that you're like look I'm not going to care about this extra you know cost here I'm just going to just buy it cuz that's it's my my time is worth more than the measly savings I would get from putting on all that effort you know
0: Maybe you and I need to continually visit uh, some of those countries so we can become like their Kardashians yes. or Paris Hiltons yeah <laughs>
1: Uh it was it was a scary uh it was also a kind of scary place though I got to say. It it was I've never felt like I could just be kidnapped off the, off the street like I have being over there. Oh
0: really? So you did feel that fear?
1: I mean it, it's um like and nothing like look, you know, I don't know if we have people, listeners in Minsk. I'm guessing probably not, but it was a wonderful country. I had I had a lot of fun there. I loved being there, but it there was a different feeling and like, when I go to Japan, Japan has a different feeling than America, but it's a much safer feeling. Like, in Japan, I will walk down a back alley in the middle of the night, no problem. I just have no concerns whatsoever about doing that, you know? Whereas in America, I'm going to think twice before I do that. Um, but being over there, it's not necessarily that anything happened, but it was kind of like, you know what? This seems like a part of the world where I could disappear. mm you know, it, it, it definitely just has a different kind of feeling.
0: I would say I can kind of relate to that, actually, only because I was born in the Bronx and I'm from Bronx, New York. I've been out here in the West Coast now for quite some time. And one of the things that I do feel I'm blessed with and thankful for is that the particular area I live in with on the, outskirt, on the outskirts of Portland uh, is safe enough where I actually live by a couple spots that are 24 hours like convenience store a uh, coffee-slash-bakery shop. And literally, I could walk over there on a summer night, 11, 12 o'clock at night if I wanted to, whereas where I'm originally from, from the Bronx, and in all fairness, I've heard they cleaned it up a little bit. You don't want to make eye contact with people going up and down the street. You, you want to be inside before dark. So some of that stuff I can relate to, That's and that's not a feeling that I miss.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I I, I live in L.A., but I live in, like, a very safe part of L.A. I like, consider it pretty safe, you know? Um, and we walk around at night in this area because we we're we're kind of a uh, I, w- I guess I would kind of say a I don't want to say a, necessarily a touristy area but that's kind of how it feels a little bit is that like the places we'd walk to near our our apartments are very much built up for having people come and go to like restaurants and shops and things so if if there's reason to be out there, there's a lot of people out you know, and I kind of feel like LA is the place where if, and this is where I was here too, is that is that if it's somewhere where you would go to, um, you know, outside your neighborhood and you have a reason for going there, it's probably going to be pretty safe. But if if you're going somewhere that you, as somebody who doesn't live in that area, shouldn't be, it might not be safe. I mean, like, you know, like if, if you're going to like the, the, the shopping center, you know, or the the restaurant or somewhere, you're probably gonna be pretty fine in LA for the most part, from what I understand. Um, but if you go to like you know, residential areas where you don't live, mm. that's where you kinda that's where you kinda you know, like like I said, the, the the places where people not from that area wouldn't be anyway. That's kind of where you get into the sketchy parts of the city. Mm. But I haven't gone looking for sketchy parts of LA, so I, that's just what I've heard <laughs> and what I know from my experience. I,
0: I might actually be able to lead into our, our main topic. One e three, I attended. Went with a few old buddies of mine who I haven't been in contact with in well over a decade. And anyway, long story short, you know, I'm kind of, I kind of do my own thing and kind of a homebody. And I was in the hotel the first night. I don't remember which year it was. It was like maybe two thousand, two thousand one. And uh, we're done with the. the, the day of the show and we get back to the hotel and I just kind of want to just shower up and hang out there and get ready for the next day and they're like no no they're like come on we'll get something to eat or go to Taco Bell we're hungry I'm like no no I'm like I don't want to go out and they're like no they they rented a car they rented a Ford Mustang it was new at the time and I tell you what I should have just stayed in the hotel because long <laughs> long long story short they went out and they're looking for a place to eat and I, I kid you not we wound up getting uh, on the wrong route and wound up going through Compton, uh, <laughs> four white boys in a brand new Mustang going through that, uh, poor area of town.
1: You so. have to get, you have to get pretty lost to go to Compton depending on where you're staying for E3. <laughs> and for people, people who don't know, like if you've never, if you've never been to E3, um, LA's downtown is just sucks. And they they've actually like like what year was that?
0: It was early two thousands.
1: So was that before like all the kind of LA Live stuff? I'm I think I think it might have been. Yeah, so, my
0: my time frame down in LA, I went ninety nine to two thousand four each year.
1: Yeah, so I mean because the, so now the area are kind of around the convention center, they actually have built it up, so it's very pricey. But there's actually lots of stuff to do there. There's like um, oh really. Yeah, a bunch of restaurants and, and nightclubs and a bowling alley. Right by
0: the, right by the convention center?
1: Yeah, because there's a convention center. There's a stable center. Yeah. Um, there's this whole kind of like little... They're, 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 it's, it feels to me like they're, they're trying to make kind of like a manufactured Times Square. Oh. Is what it feels like to me. Uh, so there is like stuff there now, whereas before there was just nothing. But the problem is, is LA's downtown is just terrible. And there, there's like... If you go to, I mean, like, when I, when I go to um, GDC or other banks in, in San Francisco, like, their, their downtown, like, actually feels like it has stuff going on. And it feels like, you know, there's, there's stuff there. Whereas LA's downtown, there's just, like, huge portions of it that there's just nothing um, unless you walk for blocks and blocks or something. So it's kind of a bad area just to be in as far as, like, wanting to do stuff. Uh, but you could also – there's also – down L.A. downtown is, is, is interesting because it, there there literally is – so Dennis Leary had this routine before where he talked about like good block, bad block, like where you could be in L.A. – I mean in, in New York, and one block's like perfectly fine, and then the next block is just like scary block, you know? <laughs> um L.A. is the same kind of way. It's like you get downtown, and certain, certain blocks feel totally fine, and then you like cross the street, and you're like, whoa, I'm just like a different city at this point. Um but before we get to that, so my, my, my LA story. So when I had been out here, uh, I think I'd been out here. No, I had I. Maybe I hadn't. Maybe it was the first time I ever came to LA. Um, when I moved out here for, to work at Game Fan. So I, I flew in, and I'm like 21 at the time. So I literally had, uh, my brother had been in the Army, so I had this big Army duffel bag. And my big army duffel bag had half of it filled with clothes, half of it filled with video games. So it was like my clothes and then my Saturn and my PlayStation and games and controllers and stuff like that. And so I get in to L.A. and the guy who was supposed to pick me up didn't didn't show up. Um, But I I was young and dumb, so I, I hadn't gotten any kind of contact information for him. I didn't know really who he was for certain or where he lived. This was back before people really had cell phones, so I didn't have a cell phone number from anything. You know, right? I didn't have my own cell phone, so I get there and I know nothing about LA, nothing about where anything is at. No idea where the game fin offices are at. Um, (laughs) All I have is like the the office number, and it's like Friday night, so the office is already closed. So I get there and I'm like, okay. I'm now in L.A., and I have no idea what to do. And I have a duffel bag giant that's full of clothes and video games. That's all I have to my name right now. Wow. So I, I stayed in a hotel near the airport, which is a kind of a sketchy area uh, if you go to cheap hotels. And so I spent, like, my first, my first weekend in L.A. was staying in this hotel kind of afraid to leave my room um there was a restaurant attached to the hotel or actually the motel to be fair uh and that was the only place i went i went to that restaurant like for every meal and so that was like my first coming out here for game fan first experience in in la was that kind of situation
0: well how how did you get there if you don't mind me asking so you got dropped off and then the person that was supposed to pick you up wasn't there
1: no I, i i just i i flew in oh okay and uh, Ryan Lockhart, actually, or Ryan from Game Fan, he was supposed to pick me up, and I and he just forgot. Mm. To be fair, too, he was like my age too, so he was just a kid, you know. Right. And, and I think I think somewhere someone had to be like, "Hey, can you go pick this new guy up?" And I'm sure he's like, "Sure." And then just just nobody pressed the the whole thing, and <laughs> there were no plans made or anything.
0: They were probably cramming for a deadline, passed out in the office.
1: I think it's just like there's a case where it's like they just forgot they would hired me, you know? Right. I'm like, wait, who are you? Oh, oh yeah. So, but conventions. You came out here for E3, but E3 was not the start of the video game convention.
0: Uh, no, uh, technically, it would have been uh, CES, right?
1: So I was trying to figure out like when exactly CES started with video games because CES, of course, the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, was started in, I believe, it was 1967 in New York City, right? And there right. was, for a while, there was Winter CES and Summer CES, right? And the thing was, like I said, again, it was it was not a video game specific um, event. It was just all, for any kind of consumer electronic. For example, looking at some of the list of things that were introduced, debuted at CES. You had the VCR in 1970, the Laserdisc player in 74, the camcorder in 81, the compact disc player in 1981 as well. Uh, ooh, CDI, compact disc interactive in 1991, <laughs> minidisc in 93. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of things. Uh, and it would actually end up with the Xbox. The original Xbox would be debuted at CES in 2001. But so CES was... All about consumer electronics, and at some point, video games started coming in to the show. And I was just a kid still at this point. I'm sure you were still a kid at this point as well. But like, I my, my my this this for me CES was my first understanding of a trade show. And part of the reason why was because of magazines like EGM. You would always have these, like, 300-page issues. And sometimes even, like, the CES part would be, like, a, a pull-out special. And it would just list game after game after game after game that I had never heard of. And it was all these games that were being shown off because the idea was you'd go to CES as a company and, and company buyers would, would, would come to the show like buyers from, let's say, Target or Walmart or at the time, Children's Palace, Toys R Us, you know, KB Toys, whoever would come, and you would show off your games at the event because you were trying to convince these buyers to purchase them for their stores. Um, but as a fan of video games, I would read these magazines and see just like all these game thing announced. I had no idea because you know there was no there was no internet there was no twitter there was there was you know as a kid i i, I didn't really know that games came from japan per se yeah you know, i knew these companies with like japanese sounding names released games that's what i knew um, but you didn't know about the whole process so i just would open these issues up and see these ces specials with all these games and all these screenshots and it just b- blew me away uh, and so that's kind of like where i first got introduced to the idea of a trade show talking about and showing off like new video games
0: uh, yeah i mean definitely uh it was very exciting at the time uh and as you're touching base here on ces and it's it's start in the late 60s uh, i did a little bit of homework before coming on otherwise i would have never known this so i'm uh not as smart as i may sound here shortly I believe gaming was introduced to CES in 1975. Okay. And the irony before that is is that what what spawned CES is in the early 1900s, there was a show that was primarily music-focused, yet different other wares and electronics were trying to make a presence. And this is actually going to get ironic because CES started because the – we'll call it the Music Expo. That's not what it was called, though which emanated, I think, started in 1901. And I'm going to give a, a, a thank you to YouTube for this. CES was spawned because different electronics outside of the realm of music needed to be showcased. There were early uh, companies that signed on, uh, you know, such as uh, uh, Sony, uh, the big American companies at the time. And then the irony is that, not to jump too far ahead, is that gaming became too big for ces and spawned its own show so from what uh mutated from music to the consumer electronic show to e3 they all kind of go hand in hand but backing up a little bit to ces gaming uh debuted i believe in 75 uh, with the likes of atari and then ironically a decade later uh 1985 when the the gaming was seen as a fad and it died nintendo came in to save it but uh with that bit of history, yes, yeah, CES was the, obviously the precursor to E3 and through the likes of uh, EGM. And I dare say, in all fairness, even GamePro at the time, because this was, all, this was all pre-game fan days. You know, it was very exciting. One would pick up any publication uh, that you could get your hands on in regards to the gaming industry. Because gaming was still was still maturing, still growing, expanding. Uh, it had been revitalized. Um, And just like you say, when you could get that amount of information, those mini phone book-sized EGMs, uh, those were gems, you know, pre-internet. I mean, in being younger as well, you would have to live vicariously through these these photographs and what people wrote at the time. And not everyone had a voice. And, you know, nowadays it's very easy with blogs, the internet. You know, you could get a URL for a dollar for a year. You know, everyone has the opportunity to let their voice be heard, and I think it's a great thing because you find you get new talent. There's people with unique perspectives, but at the same time, you get you get a lot of negativity, you get a lot of uneducated opinion, people out for their own agendas. And during this time frame, it was very uh, not to sound snobby, but more of an exclusive club. It was a kind of a fun hobby. People who knew about it were passionate about it, and you know the magazines of the day were kind of your portal into that world you know
1: yeah and and i mean as as a kid like i mean it's going to sound kind of weird now especially thinking about like what ces was you know but as a kid like i just dreamed of going to one of those shows you know because to me what ces meant was just like i said this floodgates of this floodgate uh, opening of all these new games i had never heard of and and getting to try all these amazing new products for the first time, you know, and even as like uh, now as like a professional, uh, quote unquote. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I, I there are things I love about E three and E three being a focused event specifically for gaming. You know, you you get chances that you never would have at CES. But I have to imagine there was there was some just a real joy to going to CES back in those days because. Like you're kind of saying, you know, this was this was back before the internet, before blogs, before all these different people were were trying to get in to cover this kind of stuff. So you probably had that like a handful of people outside of buyers and companies who were really into the, into the game stuff, going there. No concern for breaking news on the internet about what was being shown. You know, no concern for going home every night and getting things up on the internet uh, on your website. It was just going in there and seeing all these brand new games and playing them and talking to the companies, and then at some point later, putting together this this page after page after page of coverage of the, of the show and showing up like what you'd seen. So, I think there was a real innocence to it back at that time, and I, I on one hand, I kind of missed that because, like I said, as as a kid, I said CES was just like this mythical thing, and and I, I knew when the winter and summer CES issues were going to come out from magazines. Oh yeah,
0: that you know was, I, yeah.
1: I waited for those, and I remember said so I absolutely EGM. I remember those EGMs when I'd get them, and they would just have all this this gigantic coverage of the show, and just sitting there for days, like looking over it and wondering, you know. I mean, like that was back at the point where like you'd see a screenshot of a game and your mind would just kind of race, like, oh, what, what is that game going to be like, you know? What what am I going to be doing? What, what kind of stages is it going to have? Because um, back then, we didn't have all this information overload we do now. So, yeah, as a kid, I just, I so desperately wanted to one day go to CES. And then it's funny that finally when I had the chance to go, it was at a point when the show meant nothing to me, you know, and, and held, held nothing for me in, in interest-wise.
0: Well, I'll t- I'll tell you a funny thing uh, to your point on studying screenshots and memorizing them. You know, when that's all you had, you know, I'm sure you did the same studying every centimeter of those shots, remembering them, trying to figure out maybe something that was missed or what hadn't been described in the description as to, you know, what that game may offer. You know, that stuff is so embedded in my brain that to this day, when there's certain classic titles I play, there's certain sections of the game that I'm like, you know, I recall that shot. Or that scene from an old layout. But um, I apologize. My thought – okay, My thought was escaping me. But the the sad thing is is that there's so much information and there's so much content to be had now. And before I say what I'm about to say, I – I obviously wouldn't want to go back in a sense like I'm so spoiled with what we have at our fingertips, okay? (laughs) So I have to make this very clear. I don't want to get on some soapbox here and I'm like, we need to go back to the way it was. We need to shut everything down. We need to get rid of the internet. You know, it's an advancement. Things evolve. I'm not saying that. But the irony is that I'll go on sites now and there's gorgeous HD shots to fill up the whole screen. And I swear I I could go through five pages of screenshots now in a minute. Yeah. You know what I mean' it's like' cause either I'm so used to looking for certain things in games or I, like I know what I'm looking for or if that's an engine or you can tell where the shot's taken from, I will literally click through two three pages of shots uh in a matter of moments, whereas years ago uh, I, you know I hate to almost keep bringing them up, but another thing that set game fan apart was the amount of screenshots and the quality the quality of the shots. And the technology, I believe they had at the time, and I'm going off memory, so this I'm not the expert, but wasn't it with the RGB capture?
1: Yeah, yeah. and I was just saying because, like, I mean, part of, and you know, there are there are times when when I get to have a chance to take my own shots now these days, but like something that's really been lost is kind of the art of the screenshot because, like, you're kind of saying at this point there is just so much out there, and especially if we have like video now, right? You know, if you have a video of Oh, you know, Sony announces Bloodborne, and oh, here's a video of it. You know, you 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 want to see that. And so, shots screenshots maybe aren't as important. But back then, like we weren't we weren't getting screenshots from companies. And because look, mo- trust me, most companies take very terrible screenshots. These are the companies, people people responsible for promoting their product, and they are terrible at doing so in terms of screenshots. Um, so back then, we, we never used company screenshots. We, we always took our own. And every screenshot we took was supposed to tell a story. Like if, if you ever go back and look at a uh, fighting game reviewer preview in Game Fan, you will never see, okay, maybe not never, but you will almost always see a screenshot where both characters are doing a special move of some sort. They are doing some, each, each character is doing a specific move in that screenshot. Unless it's like, okay, this is a, a big super and the one character is getting hit or whatever. But if there's just two characters that can do so, we always had them doing moves. And so we had three people taking screenshots. We had two people playing the game and one just sitting there taking the screenshots. Because we wanted every single shot that went into the magazine to be something important. To be something that you would look at and it would tell you something about the game. Um, and, and you're right, I think that has been lost, you know, so, so when, when, and I, I feel bad, because I mean, even, even we do at this point, you know, when, when we throw shots in sometimes, sometimes it's literally like, okay, we have these 10 shots the company sent us, which are the five that suck the least.
0: And, you know? Yeah, and I can kind of relate uh, in the little experience that I have, I have some press credentials, one of them being for Capcom, so I can get into the, the Capcom login page. And they've got some beautiful shots and stuff, but it's yeah, like... They, they, don't, they don't do too but much. It's, but it's like I... That unique element, that excitement is like, is gone. You know, yeah. whether it's whether it would be a, a shot from a funny wind pose or a certain animation that really meant something or an animation shot that you wouldn't see elsewhere. And right. I would say besides the magazines, we're always kind of throwing little shots here and there and making comparisons of magazines of yesterday versus today. Uh... You know what else I feel has taken a big hit? Like I don't even – it's taken such a big hit that I rarely even check this spot that I'm about to tell you. Okay, The back of a video game box. Mm, yeah. There's a couple exceptions still, like some that do a good job. But like now it's – you remember when you would look at the back of a video game box for other, for those comparisons we're discussing – and you would sometimes get some high quality stuff. Like now it's like the shots have been shrunk down so much. There's like three different languages of text on the back of the box. I
1: was going to say, I mean, look, look, no offense to people who speak other languages, but that, like I'm looking like, right now, some, I have in my hands like the EA Sports UFC, right? And I look in the back and there is, there is one screenshot of like two dudes hitting each other. <laughs> and there's like one little block of text that is then in instantly repeated in a different language and then, more than half of the back of the box is legal text. Right. And that that that's what's selling me on this game. Like this, this back of this box does nothing to sell me on buying this game.
0: It's it's a thing is.
1: Right. It, it doesn't have to anymore. I think because if you if I want to know what UFC is, I go online and I look up videos. I go on YouTube, you know, or I look up screenshots or I go to a message forum, see so what people are saying about it, or I go to EA's official EA Sports UFC website, right. you know, or whatever.
0: I don't know. It's kind of sad. It's a sad thing that's uh, – I don't know. It's it's another lost art, and this this all comes back full circle to the the trade shows because everything is treated differently and, and everything adds up to a whole. Like th- these little things we're discussing all go back to how – Everything is treated now because of the advent of uh, the internet. You know, it, it it all comes back full circle on how things are treated, uh, how the shows are treated. Um, you know, obviously we have very fond memories. Then, you know, another point I'll, I'll try to drive home in this is that, in all fairness, with the craft of gaming, with the old CES shows in the early days of E three while i didn't realize it at the time the medium was still early on when something is new and something is unique almost everything that is done is fresh right and i'm not saying that this medium is has run its course or there's nothing left i i think it's become stale in many ways but you know that's another 20 25 years tacked on to the the days of when we're discussing so you know, that this craft of gaming, the medium of gaming is another two to three decades older. So a lot of stuff has been tried. You know, developers or teams, people have either moved on, gotten older, d- died in some circumstances. Uh, you know, everything changes and goes through cycles and shifts. So there's a lot of different factors and a lot of different variables to take into consideration, you know.
1: You know, it's, what's funny is I think back – um so I was reading an issue of Nintendo Fun Club newsletter back before Nintendo Power okay. was, was made, you know. All right. And it was an issue where they were announcing two new games, Metroid and Kid Icarus. And Metroid, it talked about how you're going to go in, in, into outer space and have the explorations. And at that point, I could not picture what the game was going to be because I didn't know how you made a game in outer space. I'm like, wait, is, isn't outer space, like, too big? Like, how, how does that work as a game? Like, I... It sounds so stupid now, but I I did I did not have a clue how Metroid was going to play because I had not ever really seen an example of what I was picturing in my head the game was going to be like. And it's like, nowadays, it's you're you're kind of, you know, right in that we just... We've seen and done so much that there's it's easy it's easy to feel kind of jaded in a lot of ways and and that you know it's easy to go to a trade show and see all this stuff and be like i've seen it already you know um like evolve is this new you know four versus one game and i was at some other booth seeing some other game and it was four versus one and I'm like, oh like like evolve basically. You know? So it's like it's so easy now just to kinda of like write things off like that because we have seen and done so much. Whereas back in those that era, everything was new and exciting. And and when you saw a screenshot, you were looking into a world that hadn't been done eight hundred times already at that point. You know, it it hadn't hadn't been like just copied and, and reused over and over again.
0: So here's another comparison. So the, the irony once again here is that now we're discussing an oversaturation of uh, certain gaming trends or gaming in general, right? Tying it back to the likes of CES and E3 when that stuff was special. And, and here's the weird thing. Like we mentioned earlier, CES started in 67. That's That is quite a while ago. So it's right. not that these things started with gaming, but for our memories and being into the hobby – CES was around a while but we got to see a little bit more through magazines and and passionate individuals in the industry but much like gaming today being oversaturated in my opinion and sequelitis everywhere the trade show itself right now in my opinion is oversaturated like the specialty of CES and 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 then E3 and I have something else that's going to kind of contradict myself, but now you've got not only do you have PAX you've got PAX East, West, South Australia, GDC CES still exists E3 still exists uh, various retro gaming expos, which I personally think are cool and awesome a plethora of retro gaming expos even one in Portland, which uh, I attended three years ago, which was kind of podunk, not to put it down I can't believe how that show has grown in the last couple of years. That game, uh, a lot of YouTube channels into gaming now cover this Portland show. But the point is the list goes on and on.
1: Well, let me, let me give you some examples. So I, I, I was asked before, uh, a few months ago to put together a list of conventions that we might possibly go to as a company, right? And so here's the list I put together. CES, DICE, GDC, PAX East, E3, QuakeCon. San Diego Comic-Con, Gamescom, Tokyo Game Show, PAX Prime, New York Comic-Con, IndieCade, BlizzCon, and the VGAs. So, like, we're, we're at a point where just for us, just for saying, okay, what do we think we should go to as a company? There, we we almost have a show, if if not, for sure, we almost have a show every single month, at least one. And we, we were... Um, I think I don't remember if it was last year where there were were so many in a certain block that that GDC and PAX Prime were back-to-back. Wow. And so we flew to one. I think it was we flew to PAX. We're at PAX from Thursday to Sunday and then flew from Boston to San Francisco and then we're in San Francisco from Monday until Friday – for for GDC so that's those are just us as a company saying what do we think we should pay attention to and then you have all the other little things like some the ones you're kind of mentioning I mean you know just uh over this weekend was Anime Expo here in LA and there were game companies in Anime Expo uh NIS had some announcements Axis had some announcements so there's like that There are a bunch of indie events, you know, now. Like you mentioned, there are now four PAX events. Um, There's just, like, tons and tons of of shows.
0: My gut instinct is it's too much. And it kills me to say that because uh, loving gaming and being such a passionate gamer, and I don't want to deny someone... Like being on the West Coast, like if someone's on the East Coast or out of the country and they get the opportunity to experience one of those shows, I feel horrible for saying it's too much because I don't want to, you know, like to be like that experience. If you can't experience it, then, then tough. You know, I feel like if someone's a gamer, you know, it would be awesome in their area or their town to have that experience. But it's like from a business or journalistic perspective or from a coverage perspective, website perspective – it's too much. I mean, it's too much. I mean, I mean, 10, 12 shows in a year, what makes it special anymore?
1: And, and I, I think it's too late. It's hard for like, okay, so if you're a company, like when – I mean, I, I feel like it used to be that E3 was when all the big announcements happened. You got it. Right? Um, but now it's like, okay, well, there's going to be something at PAX. And, oh, there's going to be something – like San Diego Comic-Con, I would love to not go to that because – no offense to the show. Look, the show, show, for what it is, is great if you're into comics and everything. But it is, it is thousands and thousands of people in, in this small little space in San Diego um, that is mostly dedicated to comics. With, with the game elements kind of, like, fighting for attention there. And it's like, why am I, why am I going to San Diego Comic-Con a month after E3? right you know why is there any announcements happening at, at that show that couldn't have happened at E3
0: and this brings up another point uh, reminding me thank you you know i don't have any facts or proof to to back this statement up but i would almost argue another reason why you don't see as many big announcements at E3 is because they have to pick their sh- like companies have to pick their shots like you're saying it's like if you if you shoot Everything you got out in June, what do you do at sdCC gamescom and like Pax East or whatever you know what I mean right around the corner right so now you're spreading yourself you 're spreading yourself thin
1: and then and then it makes it tough I me because you have times when look I mean you know for me, I get paid to do this, I get paid to go to these events and cover stuff, and so I see things from a Job perspective, and and as somebody trying to do their job, it is easier for me to have fewer events and have those be more meaningful when I go to them. Um, you know, if I go to E3 and someone's like, Well, you know, come see us at at San Diego Comic Con and we'll show you this actual game we're going to announce, it's like, I I don't want to do that, just show it, you know, show me it, show it to me now because that's what E3 to me should be about. E3 should be about, I'm coming here, all the companies are coming because I mean, one of the great things about E3 is that since Almost all the companies go; they bring a lot of their staff over, and all the people are in one place at one time. So it's a good chance to sit down with them, talk to them, meet them, right. see what they have going on. You know, that's what that should be about. Um, but it gets kind of lost when, yeah, like okay, we need something to say at PAX Prime, we need something to say at Gamescom, we need something to say at Comic Con. Uh, oh, and the VGAs—we're going to announce something there. You know, so we'll hold off anything on that. Um, I think one of the biggest points of too many that I'm kind of getting worried about is PAX. And I love I love PAX. I, I think PAX is actually one of my favorite things to go to at this point. Uh, and we'll talk about like what PAX is and like why it's fun, but there are now four PAXs. You know? <laughs> do, you and, know I, do you know how ridiculous and, that sounds? And not only that, but okay, so PAX South is in january and then pax prime is in march and at a certain point if, if you're a company like w- why do you go to certain ones and that that's part of the problem i'm worried about is you know like look we're in a we're in a for good or bad for bad a lot of it uh we're in a point where companies don't have a lot of money to waste so, you got it. Very, That's
0: another big point. This costs money. Yeah. The booth costs, yeah. You keep going. Yeah. That's a big so, point. So, they'd
1: they, they be very careful about, okay, where do they go to? And now you've been to PAX.
0: Yeah, I've been to the 2012 PAX. Yes.
1: How many games did you play at PAX?
0: Uh, 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 maybe three or four.
1: Did you, did you wait in line or did you have like special media?
0: I got very lucky. So, oh, because I got a pass from someone else, I'll even tell you the game. The one I spent the most time with at the time was Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, and I was spoiled enough to play it before the show doors opened.
1: So, if, if you had not had that, do you think you would have played many games there?
0: No. In all fairness, in my mindset's different than what it used to be when I was younger, but I won't get into my philosophy there. But, short answer, no.
1: Because, like, it's, it's I, I think I'm back to when the Wii showed up at, at E3 and there were like four to five hour waits to play the week. That's ridiculous. Um, when the, the first year that the Vita was at TGS, I, I checked the line about half hour after the show opened and at that point they had shut the line down because the people last in line, it would take them until the show closed wow. to get up there to play the Vita. Uh, like I, I love PAX, but if anybody ever goes to PAX wanting to play play games at booths, just don't go. Don't go because you'll you will. Sp- it, it, it is it's it's like if you went to Disneyland and the line's so long that you got like two rides in the entire day. It's like why are you wasting your time doing that when there are so many other things at PAX you could be doing? And it's it's a shame because I think I think that PAX isn't being done the way it should be done. Uh, because you are having kind of these big, fancy... Cause, so if you go to E3 and you see the big, fancy booths, and you see, like, uh, you know, the big statues and the monsters, the characters, whatever. Yes. And you have, like, the, the girls and their little cosplay and stuff. Um, that's, all, that, that's all being done because there are buyers there, and they are trying to get the buyers to come to the booth, check out the games, and sell those games to those stores, you know. Uh, packs shouldn't be about that. Like, packs should be about letting letting the fans see and play these games before the games are coming out. So, I think packs booths should literally just be get as put as many chairs in there as you can, as many TVs in there as you can, as many systems in there as you can, and get people in there and playing them. Or even like, <sighs> I mean, I want I wanted to talk about what I thought trade shows should be, and I don't I don't know if we should do it now or not. Uh, but I think there's, there are some big solutions to, to how these all go out. But I think people going to PAX should be going to meet other gamers and do things with other gamers. I think the, the most enjoyable parts of PAX are the panels, um, just meeting people like the sitting around, like, you know, if you're sitting around playing Pokemon or Mario Kart, you know, the, you go to like the VS area, the Vita area, the, the retro game rooms where you can just go in and like borrow games and sit down with people and play them, like that for me is what PAX is about. Um, there, I feel like that they're, they're trying to make PAX like an everybody's E three. Yeah,
0: I, agree. I feel like it's getting much more of an E three vibe now.
1: Right, and that's not at all what it should be. I don't think. I,
0: no, keep going. I'm sorry.
1: No, I was just saying. I, I, I think it's. I think it's. It's not worth gamers' time because, you know having gone to many E3s, it's hard for me to play games at E3 when the people in there are just buyers or media or the industry. When you have way more people getting in and paying a lot of good money to get into packs, like they should not be waiting in line for half the day to play a demo.
0: You know, this is going to be the, one of the craziest statements uh, that I make, but you know, and this is not meant as bragging, but you know, after having been to a handful of shows and have done it so many times and, and, you know i feel like i always got some of the better e3s that one could have ever attended you know like when i went to pax that was the first time i went to a major trade show in in about eight years and having been spoiled and being an adult now with so much to play like my motivation for even going to the shows and even if i when i do go back to e3 I'm not going down there anymore to play the games anymore. Like, I'm going down right. there to either, either mingle, meet certain people. Hey, I'll certainly check stuff out. I, yeah, maybe I'll touch a controller, but no longer is there that mystique. Like, back in the day when I got to play CVS 1 and 2 in arcade form, uh, Strider 2, you know, stuff like that, got to see Red Dead, uh, Revolver when it was still with Capcom, uh, Halo uh, running on. Uh, uh, you know, PC like architecture, you know, that was a much different, much from my eyes, special time uh, having seen the DS, you know, st- like hardware like that when it was really, you know, crazy at that time. But nowadays, and I think this all wraps back to sequelitis. I think because there's so many sequels and there's such a lack of innovation in certain genres, doesn't mean I won't play them when they come home. But I'm not taking that trip like uh, like I'm not taking that trip to play XFPS, <laughs> right. no, I, and, and I'm not, and I didn't name it, I didn't name any names because you know there's a lot of guilty parties out there, and there's even genres that I like. Like, I'm not, or, or like I like the over-the-top third-person action adventure games. I'm not flying down there to even play Bayonetta Two, but one of my most anticipated titles. I, I don't need to fly down there to figure out how that game's gonna feel and play. You know, I have to have a different drive and different motivation. But I also do think there are a group of people that aren't, quote, quote, spoiled or don't have any ins. And I do think the game playing experience still could be beneficial to them, which kind of goes back to what you were saying. It needs to be more uh, friendly to the community in that aspect, not have people show up and get disappointed. Like, you know, I had to wait X amount of hours in line to play something for 10 minutes Um. I think you're exactly right on that. I think give the new generation, give the new kids, give the new people or the people that aren't spoiled, that don't have these consoles, that are looking to make a purchase. Those are the people whose dollars that you want to attract. You don't, they don't need you and I anymore. You know what I mean? Like, like you and I, I think it's fair to say we already know what we're looking to buy before it comes out. And I have to admit, I think that's kind of a bad spot to be. At least for myself because it's in some ways I'm so set in my ways that I'll let stuff slip by me that maybe I shouldn't. Yeah, You know what I mean? Because you kind of know what you like already. But I I think they have to find new ways to attract new people or new consumers or or to make different people happy. You know what I mean? We're so set in our ways that it's like – you're right. And and PAX, from what I remember, because I was not a PAX website regular. As a matter of fact, and this isn't a knock on them, I'm still not a PAX regular, uh, to their site, but didn't mm. that start as a community thing? And, and this is going to sound nuts. Wasn't that primarily driven by the likes of like guitar hero and that music boom?
1: I, you know, I, I don't know. Cause the thing is, is like, I came into PAX. Um, Oh, when, when was my, my first show was like 2012. Was that my first PAX? 2011, 2012. That's, so I, I, PAX? Met, I met
0: you in 12.
1: Yeah, so I would to say like that or the year before were, were my first shows. Um but I mean PAX started in two thousand four. So I don't I don't know what it was in the beginning. And and I'm 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 sure I mean because, like, like a lot of these things start off as just community events. You know, right. we have like Quake we have QuakeCon, BlizzCon. We now have like is it Minecon or oh, the Minecraft? Get thing? out. Um, I I don't know what it's called. I know, but do do they
0: really have a show dedicated?
1: Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, like a lot of these things start off as these kind of just, okay, let's people from the community get together and just enjoy the game, you know? And I'm sure Penny or K would just, hey, let's get together and you can talk to the people who make the strip and we have some fun. I think it it was. yeah, but to, to be fair, I mean, the thing about PAX is it came in and it, it established the idea of the kind of E3 for gamers, right. you know. And even if I don't agree that's what it should be, I I can understand why that came up and I want to understand why it's important. Because, like I said, growing up, reading reading those magazines, looking at looking at the specials, I always wanted to go to CES, you know. And when it came time to have E3 exist, I wanted to go to E3 and i've now gone enough times that i i to me it's just like another i mean i look i i still get excited about e3 i have never been jaded enough that i am not excited for e3 e3 is hell in terms of work um and i always the day before i'm always like oh god i i'm so mad that e3 is back but as soon as it's over i miss it because i do i do love e3 but um but, you know, like, I'm, I'm at a point where, okay, okay, I, I know enough about it that it's not a big deal to me, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't get to go to E3, and so I understand them wanting something of their own, and there sh- absolutely should be. There should be a better way for these companies to connect with the community, so I don't, I don't, uh, you know, condemn the Penny Arcade guys for what they've done with the show, so my, my concern at this point is just are there too many of them, you know? And I I, look, PAX South, I get because there's a real lack of Middle America gaming events of that kind of nature. But I said I worry that at some point companies can't go to everything, right? And I think you're going to really start seeing, okay, the West Coast companies go to PAX Prime. The Middle America companies go to PAX South, and the East Coast companies go to PAX East. And that's all you're going to be seeing in terms of what what gaming presence there is. And that's not what these events should be. They they should be you getting to see, you know, the entire variety of, of gaming that's out there.
0: And now speaking of this, uh things being sectioned out, did you see the statement that the ESA... The Entertainment Software Association that runs E3 made this past uh, June, where they speculated after 2015 they may take E3 elsewhere for a time being outside of LA.
1: I'm, um, yeah, I don't, I don't like. Look, on a on a totally selfish level, I live about 15 minute drive from from where E8 e E3, E3 is held. So, for me, I don't want it going anywhere else. Right. Because it, it is, I mean, weirdly, unless they moved it like right down the street from me, it is, <laughs> it is in the most convenient place it could ever be, in my life. Right. I I I will be surprised if it is not in L.A. Um, because there are a lot of West Coast companies. You know, right. I I could potentially see San Francisco. As a replacement, I don't I don't know if that would happen or not. Um, the the thing is is, I me wonders if this is a bargaining. Chip you got
0: it. You took my with, answer away uh, with
1: the L A. Convention yeah. Center. I mean, because previously, so what for you, anybody who doesn't live in L A. Um, we've been trying. We as in a city, not we as in me, <laughs> doing this. Uh, we've been trying to get a football team back. L A. wants a professional football team. And so one of the ideas was to build a football stadium on part of the ground where the L.A. Convention Center now sits. Oh, really? So there was talk for a while that – so you know how there's, like, the West Hall and the South Hall? Yeah. There was talk that the West Hall was going to go away. So until all the renovations were done, there would just be no West Hall available for for the show, which would be kind of a a, – a lot of space lost for an E3. Uh, but that, that, that's not happening. But so now the ESA is still saying, well, we're kind of thinking of moving. But the thing is, is going to E3 this year, both the West and the South Hall. I mean, you know, I remember back years years ago where those halls were just jam-packed. And you even had like the little Kenta Hall downstairs right. with all the crazy Asian companies and stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, at this last E3 event, Not only did you have the kind of retro area as part of one of the two main halls, but you had this entire back section that was, like, just completely empty. And then in the other hall, there was a section where they had just a bunch of tables and chairs set up, and that part was empty, too. So as of right now, they cannot fill both the main halls for E3. Not
0: to sound ignorant, what what does that stem from? Is that from companies not spending the money to have booths, or...?
1: I I think I think it's a couple things. I mean, uh, not not being a professional in this at all. I would say part of it is uh, company consolidation. You know, like like when you have Square Enix by you know combined together and Tech McCoy combined together and this company combined together and that company combined together. You know, like you're getting less companies that are actually out there. I think it's a, a case of companies wanting to spend less on their booths or just not go to the show at all um companies not being able to afford going to the show right you know, so like I'm trying to think of like what companies I really feel like were missing, but I know that some um something was just like certain companies just felt like their their booth presence was just tiny, you know, so they weren't taking up as much space as they typically do.
0: Let me ask you this. You mentioned Square Enix. I have to ask. Do they still do the deal where you have to get a ticket and wait in line and then you go in that private theater to sit down? Yep. They still do that same gig? So, so,
1: so far so far as I know, yeah. Wow. Because I didn't actually go to them this year. Because uh, it's one of those weird years where some of the companies felt like they had just nothing to show. And so Square Enix was really bad about having like almost nothing to really be in their booth mm-hmm. new, in terms of new games. Right.
0: They gotta get. They gotta get the ball moving on something, huh?
1: So I don't. I said I don't. I don't know that it's gonna move out of LA. Um, I know that they when they tried it before, it was a pretty big failure.
0: Yeah, when they went to Atlanta for a couple of years, and then they yeah. went to uh, was it Santa Monica?
1: Yeah, they, they 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 tried Santa Monica. Um, they tried like just have it separated into like hotels and meeting spaces and stuff.
0: That sounds like a mess.
1: It was. It was a. It was a really big mess. Yeah so i i I think it just might be a case of they're trying to trying to threaten the l a Convention center maybe get a better price and either just pocket that savings or maybe use that to kind of reduce the booth rate a little bit you know right, try to get more people back in because it it this year felt. I've, I, to be fair, I I, I did not go to E3 in the years before it kind of broke down and became the Santa Monica thing. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I did. I'd have to look and see the exact years, but I've never really been worried about E3 like I was this year. Like last year's E3 was rough just because there wasn't a lot going on. It was a transitionary period. So you just knew that it was not going to be a, a just great time for that, um, but this year was just you felt like it was shrinking
0: really so in ter- now, but you're talking in terms of booths, but not attendees or both.
1: I would say in terms of in terms of booths like like yeah, not in terms of attendees, but in terms of booths and in terms of company presence. And company effort.
0: Mm. Could this all possibly come full circle to what we've been talking about and just that there's so many shows and they gotta buy their time and money?
1: I I, I, I wonder, I mean, like I said, like I part of me, you know, is, is like okay, when they had so many different events, you know, if if you're Capcom, for example, maybe you just go to PAX and you just do things at PAX, you know, or you do things at San Diego Comic Con, or if you're uh, Nintendo, you just don't go anymore. Hmm you know i mean cuz n- n- nintendo look on in terms of who i am in in terms of media i don't like what nintendo's doing with their with their nintendo direct stuff right um but i completely understand why they do that and i think i can't blame them for doing that because you know going the nintendo direct route taking your message directly to your consumers with no middlemen you know, and saying we don't need a press conference because people are just going to watch this online anyway. Like, I can't blame them in that, you know, and that's a pretty logical move to make. Um, so the question, the question becomes, you know, like, how, like, if, if you're, I don't know, and I don't know this answer because I'm not I'm in the right business, but, like, if you're Microsoft, for example, right, do you have to, sell your console to, like, Walmart and Target? Like, are Walmart and Target not going to buy an Xbox One to put in their stores? You know?
0: No, I, I would say, I don't know if that's a question to me, but I would say with its name value and what they've been able to establish, and I think maybe the answer you're looking for is no, not really, you don't really have to, quote, sell them on it because previous products have sold and they'll probably give it a chance until it stops selling.
1: Right. So, I mean, so do those companies, I mean, other than them promoting other people's games, which I, I, I can understand, like, do those companies need to act at a big presence at E3? You know, and like the, the answer is
0: probably I, I, I don't think so, and I think this comes back to the, the magic, not really magic trick, but just the curtain being lifted uh, present day with the advent of the internet. I don't know if I could say it any more times than I already have, in that where the magazines, it was spe- there was that special aura around it it was more of an exclusive thing it it, you know you really had to be an insider to get in like for real and whereas now with everything streaming you know whether it be from work the comfort of your own home the same message is still getting across to the consumer and everyone else like you don't have to be there for it Uh, You know, another thing, and I thought they were going to do more of this. They did try this at E3s. Now, from this perspective, this is coming back to the consumer, not really a benefit for the insiders or anyone else. But because there's so many eyes on E3 and getting back to what you were saying earlier, where people, it should get to the point where you actually get time to play the games and not, you know, get discouraged from waiting in line for hours. I would almost make it come E3 time for whatever company... And their product, that you have a demo to download, even if it's timed for consumers at home.
1: You you just hit the point I've been waiting to make for a long time now. So, wasn't there a, 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 a an E three a couple years ago where there was a bunch of demos put up for that show?
0: I think you're right, and I don't honestly, unless we're both crazy, I think you're right because I remember when that happened. I was like, oh, this is like. I don't know if I thought it was the end of E3, but I'm like, okay, this now – you've now cut out all the reason for having to fly down there to play the stuff. I don't –
1: I mean I'm kind of like helping to usher in the end of E3 like you're talking about here potentially. But I – like one of the jokes made, and this is made by many people in the media, is that when you go to E3, you know less about E3 than you do if you're at home. Yeah. Because when you're at home, you can you can watch all the press conferences at this point. You're not gonna miss any of them. Like, I mean, I I I went to this year I went to Microsoft, I went to EA, and I went to Sony in terms of the press conferences. There was no difference in me going to be staying at home and watching them. I could have done the exact same thing. Uh why why are there not more demos? Like I, I don't know. if It's a question of we don't want the general public getting their hands on it. Which, if it is, that's that's kind of a terrible thing. But okay, then then if the games at PAX, for example, like then there's no excuse. So, I mean, there's certain things I could not do from home. Like like, like interviews are hard. Like it's it's very nice to get somebody down in person and do the interview, right? But all every demo at E3 could be up in the marketplace. And it could be up in a way that the only way to get it would be for me to get code from from Sony, from Microsoft, from Nintendo, whatever. You know, so that it's not, like, up for general public, but it's only for, like, media or whatever. Um, but even, like, for just peop- regular people, like, why are those demos not up? Because I think one of the most exciting things they could do and one of the ways to just put more excitement into this industry would be to say, as soon as E three hits, all these or even like even half of them, like half the half the demos that are at E three, you can download this the first day of E three. Like why why in this era, why in twenty fourteen can we not do that?
0: You know, I agree I agree in a sense of you know, that's that's another element with the platforms of xbox live playstation network uh even nintendo's network i mean this is another layer they could add to those um i think it would make e3 an even much uh, another special time again and while i wouldn't want them all to be timed so to speak being greedy you know time them for just maybe the, right. the days of e3 because i've right. we've played timed demos before right. uh you know, not to ruin it, but like even if they needed to stick an ad when downloading something, because it always comes, to, everything comes down to money. Which I, <laughs> I'm so sick of talking about money, whether it be at work or personal life. It's so disgusting because things were so much easier without responsibilities and and having to worry about money. But you know how it is with these companies. As an insider, there's always there's got to be a gimmick. There's a catch. It's like, what are we getting out of this? What, you know, what kind of exposure do you have? What's your audience? How many clicks you got? Okay, you have all this. You have this kind of exposure. Okay, then we'll help you out.
1: Okay. Okay. So, so Anthony, if if you could pay, and look first, real quick before we get into this, let me let me, let me make it clear. Um, some of the demos at E three are not ready for prime time. They are kind of like we know your media. Right. We're showing this to you so you can get an idea of what the game is. We know you understand that. So I'm not someone those kind of demos. I mean, I, I I understand why some games they would never be be put up. Okay. But let's let's say just for example, uh, let's say Sony or Microsoft, whoever said. Uh, you pay five dollars for this E three pass, and you get to download twenty demos that were shown at E three. Would would you pay that? Five five bucks.
0: As a game, and, yes, yes. But uh, and yes. and
1: let's say maybe maybe you get like all the trailers as well. Yes, and you get little special. They do like interviews and stuff. I mean, I would as a gamer. I would be willing to pay like five bucks to to help offset if it's a bandwidth issue or whatever right. or they just want to make a little bit of money off of it i'd pay five bucks to pay like to pay to pay like 20 of the biggest demos from e3 if, if i if i had no way to go there myself as a journalist
0: right i mean we could cut this 20 different ways you know from their business eyes putting up the demos like you said for streaming or whatever costs that may ensue but At the same time, it's like if you travel down to E three, you're saving on a plane ticket, you're saving on X, Y, and Z. So, I mean, five bucks or even ten bucks for a whole three day pass. Actually, maybe that becomes the new pass for gamers at home. Um, uh, why not?
1: Yeah, or you know, I mean, like, like um, for for me, I would love I would love something like that because then I could. I could say, okay, you know what, those demos, I don't even need to worry about touching them at E three. I can spend my time at E three talking to the companies, doing interviews.
0: You would get more exclusive you know, content, you get more yeah. you get more unique content for your job.
1: Because literally a a huge chunk of our E three time is just playing these five minute, ten minute most demos just so that we can say what we did and write something about them, you know? Right. And, yeah, I, I, want, I want to use that time to actually get real stuff, to talk to people, to do interviews, you know, to, to, to ask them questions and stuff like that. And what I was going to say, too, is, is okay, let's go, let's, let's go on with this. Let's say that, that at PAX, right, not even for everybody, let's say that you go to PAX and they have um, Metal Gear Solid Five Phantom Pain booth, right? Let's say instead of standing in line all day long for a chance to play a demo for, like, 10 minutes – you go to the booth, they give you a little ticket that has a number on it. You take that number home, you put it in, in the store, and you download demo. So that way you have to either have gone to PAX or somebody who went to PAX gave you their number. But that would that would let people have a gameplay experience from PAX without standing in line all day for that one game.
0: You know what I would say, and it brings back to that exclusive aspect. You know, Maybe it would be a positive thing. cut out all of your non insiders or people who squeak in eliminate all of them from from e3 yeah every yeah e3 whatever take your pick and mm-hmm. then for people truly in the industry like yourself you would get you would get that exclusive content but at the same time for people who cry blasphemous or how dare you I can't go there and play these games you're not losing out that aspect of the experience you can play at the comfort of your own home Right. Whereas the and you
1: know, the, And that, that that's always been a touchy subject, and, and look, I mean, for right or wrong, I'm coming from the side that says if you don't have a legit reason for being there, you shouldn't be there at, at E3, you know, because if you want to see him at baby, that's fine. You can say that, you know, but I'm there for my job. I'm there to do my job, and if there are all these people who are just there to have fun and visit E3, you know, and just play games, like – if they're getting in the way of me doing my job, that's a problem for me, you know. And it, it's kind of the same way. Like, look, I'll, I'll be realistic. We don't do a lot of videos, for example, right? So if if I'm bugging a company to do a video when when, when we hardly do videos, and I'm to eating into let's say like game trailers time, you know, or uh, uh, G four's time or whatever,
0: IGN or Gamespot,
1: yeah. You know who who is known for doing a lot of videos and is known for that kind of stuff you know i think the same thing it's like look i shouldn't be wasting their time unless i'm somebody who really does a lot of video and would make good use of that um so you know i think on the on the e3 sense it is a business event and you should go in for business but like a pax or whatever that's for everybody so i do think that you know if if people just want to go and play games they should be able to do that from their comfort of their home. I, I just I think there's no reason why in 2014 we can't have at least some of the big E3 demos downloadable at home, right? So, like you said, even for even if it's just for three days or a week or whatever, like Evolve, why, why is there no Evolve demos still? I mean, because you know why? Because everyone wants to do a beta test now. <laughs> everyone wants to make a big deal and they want to make exclusive agreements so they have a beta test three days before another platform has it so that it's supposed to be some exclusive agreement or whatever and everything's a beta now
0: not to get off on another tangent don't you find it humorous present day what counts as an exclusive or exclusive content like back in the day an exclusive game to a console was an exclusive game or you know now it's like get this map or this alternate con uh, like yeah, ex- I'm,
1: I'm I'm sick I'm so sick of it and and look part of part of the reason I'm sick of it is I I don't like the idea of exclusives period because I I don't want to take a game away from somebody else right and I don't want them to take the game away from the platform I want to play it on if if like Bayonetta 2, for example, okay, there's nothing to be done at that point, because Nintendo is helping to finance the game, I understand that, you know but you know, when we were at this point of like, okay there's um, oh god what what was that good example, there was some Sega Sega game, where it was both PS3 and Xbox 360 in Japan and Microsoft paid oh, uh, was it Outrun? the digital Outrun game yes
0: that's right. Were, were,
1: were they paid Sega to only have it come out on the Xbox 360 in America? Like who the who the f?
0: Like they also did that with Race Storm HD. But I downloaded yeah. the Japanese version on PS3.
1: Who goes? Yes, and really thinks that's some big win for the platform? <laughs> like first of all, nobody's going to give a crap about those games. Like I mean, outside of like you know a, a niche audience. Right. And second of all, like, like why, why are you spending money to stop PlayStation owners from playing Raystorm? Like, really? You think that's going like, to, like, help your system at all? And
0: isn't uh, Xbox One getting a new Raiden exclusively? Like old school shooting, Raiden. Oh, I don't, I don't know that. Much. I, I could be, I may have dreamt that up, but I thought I saw something like that creep around. Or another funny aspect is when you see like something like a someone like a treasure, some of their titles get snagged exclusive on X console. Right. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating.
1: Look, I would, I would rather have the exclusivity be a map or a gun skin or a a dog collar or something like that (laughs) that you know then have the entire game be exclusive but it it is so funny especially like I remember you know you watch like this year and the console and I mean the the, uh, conferences and be like oh we got exclusives for this and exclusives for that and exclusives for this like both companies Microsoft and Tony were doing that a lot and you actually look at the list of the exclusives you know like the Destiny exclusives are hilarious
0: what are they it seems like they reverse roles like place Sony got Destiny exclusives and then MS got Call of Duty exclusives. What are the Destiny ones?
1: Let me see if I can find... Okay, Destiny's PlayStation exclusive content detailed. Um, Okay, so, I mean, the biggest thing is you you get a a unique co-op strike, right? That's, that's that's like, a mission. So there's a mission that's unique to only the PS4 version. Mm. And then there's a unique map um and then okay so so gear for the warlock class manifold seeker armor uh for the titan class veneer the battle tested armor set forward to protect titans uh so uh, like one armor item each um you get a monte carlo exotic assault rifle <laughs> the hawk moon exotic hand cannon and then you get like uh different ships but I mean, like, like most of my like complete vanity stuff, right? And it's just, and it's it's just like it's so dumb. And I don't, I hate, I hate that we've gotten it as a as a hobby to this point where people are just like fighting over these like digital scraps, you know? And it, it, the worst of it is when it's each it, retailer, right? Like, you go to Walmart, you get the pink pulsar rifle, but if you Order from Amazon, you get the elegant uh, ephemeral shotgun. <laughs> it's absurd, but yeah. But if you get uh, if you go to GameStop, you get the shiny yellow hand cannon. You know, and and it's just like, oh my god, like are, are we really just like that far? You know, f- that far fallen. That that that's what excites gamers, and that's what like makes gamers like want to buy games on one platform versus the other well
0: i'll tell you where i've changed in the last uh, five to ten years is that when a limited edition came out a lot of my limited editions used to be exclusive to japan like i would that's when i did a lot of importing and then we started to get some nice stuff over here admittedly uh whether it be from the likes of atlas or back in the day from working designs it was always a treat and uh, you know I, w- I would give credit for uh, stateside working designs really setting a high precedent for us And I was the type where I'm like, whatever, if there was a game coming out and it had a limited edition, I had to have it. Like I I had to get the limited edition. Things have changed so much now and gone so far down the hole that I now pick and choose the limited editions and what I would used to consider uh, insane for me. Like there are certain titles that I will get the standard edition because the limited edition uh, packages now or the exclusive content is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I don't know if you used to hoard limited editions or used to get really jazzed for that kind of stuff.
1: I never go for limited editions.
0: Now, what, you, what even back in the day?
1: Nope. I, I I hate them.
0: Oh, wow. Even the working designs, the Lunar? Yep. and Wow.
1: I, um, because I don't, I have this thing where I don't, I don't, I don't like having crap in my house. <laughs> and I always feel like limited editions are just crap, more crap in my house. Um, what What really stopped me was like the steel books and things like that, like, oh, I hate those so much because I'm kind of like o c d when it comes to game cases mm. um so if if I have game cases that are non standard that drives me just absolutely crazy like the the one exception I had the one except okay, I will sometimes make an exception for specializations, like for example, I have um, as many as I've been able to collect. Special editions for, like, the Shin Megami Tensei games. Okay. And those drive me crazy because, like, they'll be in different size packaging <laughs> and stuff. And, oh, I hate that. Um, so every now and then, like, I do, I do have, like, the Hakuoki PSP Special Edition, just partially because that was, like, the, the main edition that was out there at first. But typically I will not go for Special Editions just because 99% of the time there's nothing they include that I want. Like I don't care about figures, I don't care about uh any little toys or anything. I don't I don't care about cloth maps or art books or things Ooh, like that. I'm, a, I'm like, a little
0: surprised on the art book statement, but No, no,
1: no. I I love art books, right. but I love real Yeah, not real not, real not the little
0: books. 16 or 32 page. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. I I want like an actual full legit, you know, 80 100 page book. Book-sized book. Right. Um you know So I I don't know. Like, I I just, yeah, I, but I think the whole fight over exclusive items for games is just stupid. And, and I, I think it's making our industry look dumb. Right. And, but I said, I don't know, like maybe, maybe people like this, you know, maybe they do. I mean, maybe that's why. I I wonder uh, if it's a generational thing, a
0: generational thing. Maybe the newer gamers now or whatever, maybe they don't have the, like, they just don't remember back in the day what we used to get versus what they've got now, maybe.
1: I mean, look, I, I can see where, for example, uh, was it Batman Arkham Asylum where the PS3 version had, like, the special Joker mission? Yeah. Was that city or asylum? Uh,
0: well, they all had their origins. They okay. all had some crap.
1: So if... if I, I can see, like, saying, okay, if people have both consoles, then I'm gonna buy the one that has more content. That makes total sense to me. I, I think it's... I think it's dumb that we live in a, a world where that's a big deal to companies is getting that exclusive content. I, I understand why they do it, though, you know? At least in that case, it's actual like a mission mission collection and stuff, you know? But where it's like just a bunch of dumb little digital crap and every version has something or or the they're touting it as being this exclusive version when it doesn't have that much more to it. I think part of it... Now I think about it, it's just, it's the way it's being um, talked about by these companies. Like, before it was kind of like, oh yeah, by the way, Arkham City, we we have uh, exclusive Joker missions on PS3, you know. But now they're making such a big deal about it. They're like, oh, we have all these exclusive games. And what I really mean is the games that everybody else has, but they have exclusive content. They will take you like 15 minutes to finish.
0: Wow, so they're really angling it that bad as that's their exclusive uh
1: that that's what I feel like. Wow. It's just like it's it's it's. I think it's the angle on that. Just it's like it feels at times like every game these days has that at their multi platform. Mm. Mm. That's a completely separate topic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, well, well, at least I feel like with our topic this evening, we have some sort of a uh, a conclusion in terms of how to uh, maybe fix or alternate it with, uh, with the yeah. demos at home and having the media get back to doing their jobs in the, on the field?
1: I think, I, just, I think that if you go to an event, like a Pax, for example, you should be able to do things that you just can't do anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, like... like <laughs> this sounds so dumb, but for me, one of the biggest things about Pax, you know, is Street Pass on my 3DS. Because there's actually people I know... I mean, people I, I walk past... On, a, on you know every day, that have 3ds's as well, that I can street pass them. You know, like cause that doesn't happen on a regular basis in on American streets, right? Um, it should be something like that. You know, people just like getting together and playing board games together, playing video games, you know, busting out retro games and and playing that kind of stuff. Like, we, people shouldn't have to be going to getting in line for hours to play some demo <laughs> that they could just download on their console. You know, it, companies should be trying to like. You know, if, if Capcom has a booth, they should be having a Street Fighter tournament there, you know? Um, if, a, if a if Assassin's Creed is there from Ubisoft, they should have, like, a... Because I think, like, last year, was it, where Ubisoft had, like, a, a, a photo booth? Where you can put, like, Assassin's Creed clothing and then take photos? Mm. Like, stuff like that's what I want. You know, promote your game, but promote your game in a way that isn't just people standing in in a, a long line for hours to play a demo. Right. You know, like do like fun things to get people excited for your game in 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 other ways. I mean, the indie sections I totally understand. The indie sections are there because there might not be another way for people to play those games or to find out about them and they can meet the creators directly, you know. Uh but for the big games just do some other stuff and and just put a demo up online, you know, like I I kind of hate how we've gotten to a point now where we have so few demos
0: well it's it's interesting from a, a creative perspective some of the things you touched on in terms of you know I think this is where marketing teams and, and just it's a whole thing that comes together where people are looking for unique ideas and I do think there's a, there's a I don't want to use the term rut but there's a cookie cutter aspect that we've fallen into whether it be with limited editions or what goes on at these shows because um, I was in on a couple of telephone conversations when it related to Titanfall before it came out, uh, as well as a few years ago for what was a ghost recon future sh- soldier. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with some individuals and mind you, I was not the mastermind behind this. I was kind of more just sitting in and, and just voicing some thoughts here and there, but it's, it's always like with the launch of the games, it's like the, the tournament aspect, like like you mentioned, which is a positive thing. Like it's always the tournament aspect, or what kind of tchotchkes, like whether it be like a hat, a keychain, or you know. And mind you, that's this is nothing bad, you know. I'm not saying they need to, but uh, there needs to be more innovation in that field as well. And I think in terms of in salvaging these these shows, and I think it all comes back to your basic one, the basic 101 – business in terms of like you know maybe have a mission statement or like what's the goal like you you have to have a vision what's the vision what's the goal and how do you achieve that as bare bones and as that may sound you know you literally need to put pen to paper come up with some ideas you know more than seven to 14 days in advance and not push it off on to someone else on the marketing team or whatever to figure out you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's yeah. a cumulative effort. There, there needs to be a little bit of brains and effort behind it. I'm not saying I have the answers. But you're right. There needs to be a spark. There needs to be something to reignite the passion and interest in these shows before they just become stagnant and shells of their former selves. You know?
1: Yeah. Um I don't know I, I i don't know like what I want most from a show i mean I, I said i I enjoy most of the ones I go to and I enjoy it from different reasons but i i said so I think the thing I've noticed is that companies are just starting to lose the ability to go to them all you know when it was like two or three shows a year it wasn't that big of a deal, but now there's so many that it's become this kind of piecemeal of of who's going to be where, and that makes. I mean, like I said, I don't. I want not be crying about my job here, but that makes like someone like me have to go to um, more shows <laughs> to catch up with everybody, right. because we are being separated because of having more shows. Mm. And it's like anything. Like anything. Like I said, you, you know, you grow too big, and that makes it much easier to kind of fall apart.
0: Do you almost feel like from a business perspective that because there's so many online sites, blogs and what have you that it's to a point where the companies need to pick and choose who they provide content to or like and now this sounds real bad because I, you know what's going to happen here is favoritism or I'm not I'm not talking about greasing someone's you know lining someone's pockets but like taking a look at an individual source and how they handle themselves professionally or are they, you know, do they treat it like a true job?
1: Oh, no, no, I, no, I, I think absolutely there's favoritism. I mean, uh, absolutely right. They there pay, is, right. Pick and choose. But in, in yeah. a
0: perfect world, don't you think they also kind of need, like need to do that? But, Oh but... yeah,
1: no, I, I, I think they do, but I think part of the problem is, you know, when we get back to the exclusive conversation is, I think that also works in game coverage is, is, that mentality is because it's like, okay, um, so we're talking to you and you'll give us four pages in your next issue. Okay. So we'll give you one character reveal and we'll talk about one new game mode. Wow.
0: They pulled that kind of game in terms of how much space you give them.
1: Right. And then, so you, you, you run your, you run your thing. And then all of a sudden you see a, a, another organization has a big reveal for that game. And they're talking about features that you hadn't even heard about. Um, so that def- that definitely happens. I mean, they, they, like, it, it'll get to the point where they'll say, like, okay, we have 20 screenshots, new screenshots, right? Um, depending on how much coverage you can give us, we'll give you this many of those screenshots. And you can have those as exclusives, you know? So then you get, like, three of the 20 screenshots, and some organization out there gets two of the 20 screenshots, Somebody else gets two, somebody gets one, somebody gets three, you know.
0: I I have the answer. What's that? When Persona 5 is finally ready to be fully unveiled (laughs) and you approach them, tell them you'll just dedicate a whole issue of EGM to it.
1: So did I I tell you that – did I tell you about about meeting uh, Soejima? No. Yeah, so I met him at E3. And, I, and I, I took I took my issue of Play with me.
0: I saw that via Twitter, it, but we didn't discuss this. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I pulled it out, and I'm like, "Do you remember this?" And he's like, "Oh, of course I remember what, it." You know, wow. and and I'm like, "I'm the person who wrote that." And he's like, "Oh, thank you very much." And he's like, "We have this hanging up in the front lobby or the front offices of Atlas in Japan."
0: No kidding. That issue of yeah. Play.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, "Oh, sweet." And so
0: that's kind of unbelievable, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Talked to him for a little while, but and and got him to sign my copy and everything. So,
0: I've seen photos of him in uh, a couple of the art books I have. He seems like uh, seems like a nice. Uh, oh, what am I trying to say? I'm not thinking of the right words. Like, uh, uh, I don't have the right words in my in mind. But uh, he, he was he was
1: a very nice guy. Like, it's he seems um, kind of
0: easygoing. Kind of yeah. Yeah,
1: no, yeah, he was. Yeah, uh, like Japanese game coming people are always really interesting because um you'll you either get somebody who just is very serious and because I mean like you know you understand that like in Japan at least before twitter there was there was not that kind of connection to the the fandom you know like I feel like I feel like in the in the west i I feel that there's there's it's easier to talk to the people who make games then it isn't the Oh, I
0: see like it's I see.
1: I mean with with Twitter that's changed a little bit when you have people you know um uh like oh god I'm totally spacing his name platinum guy
0: Yeah,
1: who like bitches at everybody, you know. Yeah, like like come on on Twitter or or Kojima or whoever who who do some kind of or you know Yoshinori Ono or people like that. Um but like For example, I met – why am I so bad at names today? Uh, uh, Mikami. Mikami Shinji Mikami? Yeah, Shinji Mikami at at E3.
0: This past – for Tango?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he seems like somebody who just – like you are wasting his time when you talk
0: to him. I've only seen a couple photos of him, but it's weird. I can kind of get that from his demeanor like – yeah, I, I don't know why. I I have some old books, uh, I think it was a video game book, the first quarter century it's called. And there's a couple shots of him in there. I can I can kind of pick that up.
1: Yeah. Um, so I mean like I not in that's necessarily like a rude right? Game, but just you but his his answers are all very short and just feels like he, he feels like he has things better things to do than to down <laughs> talk to media, you know? Um, but on the opposite side you get somebody like Sweary. Like I've I, I know Sweary pretty decently at this point, you know. And whenever I see him, we just sit down and chat and he's a really super nice guy. Um Ono is like busy. He seems to
0: create he seems the craziest of the bunch but in a fun way.
1: But he's a really fun guy to talk to. Like like he's always busy, but when he has a chance to sit down, you can talk to him. Yeah, he's a really fun guy. Uh, you know, so I mean what was I saying? So the person I was talking about, I totally forgot.
0: Shinji mikami um, or originally it was Soejima
1: yeah, Sojima, yeah. So I got a chance to meet him. Yeah, and he, and he was a very nice guy. Like, he seemed like a very down-to-earth, like, you could just sit there and chat with him for a while, you know, and have fun. So, yeah, that, that, was, that was, like, really cool for me, like, because, you know, I mean, there, there are some people in the industry that I've never met that I really respect or am kind of a fan of. And so he was somebody that I had never, I had never met, like, any of the real, like, Atlas artists.
0: right. Cause he,
1: like, I've, I've, I've met, met, never met Kaneko, and I would love to meet Kaneko at some point, you know. But, so he was really cool.
0: And he does, for a refresher, he does the character design, but he also, work, does he do things um, story-wise or development-wise to an extent? Oh. He definitely uh, does a lot of the art and character design, though, right?
1: Yeah. I'm I'm trying to think of what he's done.
0: Let me see here. Oh.
1: Our, our direction, our direction, character direction. I, I feel like he's only done art. Mm.
0: But it does seem at the very least he's got certainly a prominent role because his name is always thrown around with, uh, you know what I mean, with that series.
1: Yeah, I mean, because basically at this point, he's basically the lead on the Persona series. Um, he also did Catherine, of course, but he's, he's kind of the man in charge now of Persona.
0: And I am not being rude here. I, was, I my apologies. I was just I was just looking them up here. But yeah. Do you think uh So what I mean, have you heard any rumblings? And I'm sure if you have, you probably couldn't tell, but what's the deal with uh Persona 5?
1: I I I don't know. I am like in terms of gameplay-wise, I don't anything like
0: like obviously nobody's seen a real screenshot out in the wild if you look on wikipedia which doesn't mean anything they claim the japanese release date was still slated for end of this year in north america 2015
1: i i i would i would uh believe that
0: you think that the game could still see the uh see light of day this year somewhere
1: yeah oh yeah wow yeah I, i i i uh Look, it, it's, been, it's been so long, this game hasn't been announced, that I have a lot of faith that they waited till they were sure it could come when they were going to say it's, it's going to come.
0: Let me say this then for clarification on my end. I guess the point I'm trying to drive home at this point since they haven't shown that much. Is it safe to say that the game is not in development hell? Um...
1: I I don't it's mm, the problem with Atlas is I don't they just they just seem to work on a totally different time frame sometimes. Mm. You know? Um because I mean Persona four came out as one of the final big PS two games. Right. And now it's totally fine for them, right. you know. And and it took a long time for PS for, for P three to kind of come together. I I think there's I think there's there's two big thoughts is one is development hell and two was they did not want to rush a P five out and kind of ruin what they've built now. Because I mean, you know, Persona five did, did kind of become I mean Persona period became this kind of gigantic series that it never was before for Atlas. And I also have to think that if if you want to say development hell, I think it might be more of the just turmoil at the company. Right. Like the game is wasn't in trouble, it was just a whole indexes financial issues and being bought by Sega and getting everything up and running with that and stuff. I think that could potentially have, uh, you know, put a crimp in things. I I also and I have no proof of this whatsoever. I have this weird little voice inside me that says it's also coming for, for PlayStation 4.
0: Oh, you'd think that they would switch or or maybe do dual PS3 and PS4?
1: Yeah, hmm. I, I I have no proof to that, and I could very easily be wrong, but, um, you know, you have Sega in the lead. I feel like Sega would have said, you know, look, guys, take a little more time and, and get it on both platforms because... Persona's big enough in the west now that that's going to make a lot of sense to put on the new system. You know what I mean? I mean like pushing pushing P5 to PS4 is not a big deal at all in Japan right now. Like just not that's not a that's not a factor. But I think for the west seeing like how how quickly sales of last gen games have gone down, Oh. I think it would make a lot of sense um, and you know that that could have that could have I'm trying to think of when the whole Sega deal went through. I thought like, it was last it was, like,
0: fall or something, but like...
1: So, I mean, so, I mean it, it, might, it might have been too recently to really affect this much in terms of what Sega thought, but, you know, I, I, not gonna be sh- I will not be shocked. I, I'm not holding my breath for it, definitely, but I will not be shocked if it happens. Um, but I think the big question is, like, what is this game? Because, you know, back, in the, back in when it came out, the whole conversation was, well, Catherine's a test you know, Catherine's the the starting point for getting a, a a at that time uh current generation version or next generation version of Persona of, out there. You know? So I know it's gonna be still be based on high school, but is the game gonna play differently than P three and P four did? You know, is there gonna be any kind of like Catherine influence where it's more that kind of realistic slant on things. Uh, I don't know. I do, I do not. I am really curious. Cause I just do not know what this game's going to be.
0: I think. Um, I, I always said this. I think from a visual perspective, it may have more of a Catherine look, but gameplay wise, it's you know what I mean. I I still, I'm I'm thinking it's going to be uh, much like P three and P four, but maybe new. I don't know. Maybe new social elements or. Uh, you know what I mean? Just somehow expanding that.
1: Yeah, I said I, I. I guess one thing I worry about is that they might get into the kind of Call of Duty thing, where they're they're too afraid to change too much. You know, I mean, because cause that was that's what made Persona Three so exciting, was it was totally different than the previous Persona games. You know, um. And even with P four, I, I I kind of started worrying that like okay, they can't just keep doing the same game over and over again. Um, but P four worked because just the cast was so strong. So I I think I think P five like cause if you play Catherine, it has a little social elements like say so for example um, writing text messages to Catherine and stuff. You know, I I think it has to have a lot of little details like that, like little social elements that aren't just I go find you on a certain day. I ask you if you want to hang out. We go have a cutscene together, you know. Like, I think the social stuff has to be built in much deeper than that for this game to continue on. And I worry that if it's not, if it's too much like the previous game, that it's just, it's, it's, it'll still be a lot of fun, but it will just kind of show that they're getting stagnated, especially hmm. this many, this many years out. I mean, because God, what? Persona cover was 2008. What? Isn't that when the game came out?
0: Uh, for four? Yeah. I remember it being December.
1: Because we were, because it wasn't, I don't think it was my, the, our last issue.
0: No. I'm I'm going to cheat. I I, I I think think... I wanted to say 09, but. Was it? It was, oh, wow. No, you're right. It was uh, December 08 here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's.
0: So pushing six years.
1: Yeah. Six years later.
0: Hmm. Mail.
1: But, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that doesn't get talked about a lot um, is that part of part of what happened with Japanese game development last generation was, I mean, from what I know, because I was, I was talking to somebody who does development, and they were saying the fact that, um, you know, because Unreal Engine became this big, gigantic thing in the industry as far as, like, a, a good tool to use to make games. Right. But, but the problem was the Japanese... Documentation was just almost non existent for Unreal Engine. So, if you were a Japanese developer, it was really, really hard for you to understand how to use Unreal properly. So, a lot of companies were still having to either make their own engines or spend a lot of time figuring out Unreal or anything like that. So, I think that's one of the kind of the big stumbling blocks last generation was just that, that Japan found itself without a really good middleware solution for gaming.
0: Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's an interesting point. I know you and I have discussed it in the past, and you know, for for this new generation, we've embarked on. Uh, I feel like obviously things should be quote easier, and I'm not someone that's a, a developer. This is only from what I read, but I also feel at the same time because of the troubles of last generation, whether it be with that coinciding with lesser sales in the West being stronger. I also feel like the Japanese companies that are hanging in there are trying to pick their shots or time it better, especially with the advent of so many games being on the market. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think there's a whole wide array of things. I think The Last Generation was a huge learning experience for a lot of Japanese developers, whether it be from the perspective of development, uh, uh, how fans reacted to certain releases or DLC uh, versus giving fans what they wanted, releasing uh, those titles, having sales fall short, um, releasing too much in too short of a span of time. You know what I mean? If you look, I think one of the, the companies that you can see, in my opinion, is really picking their shots right now is Capcom. I mean, there was a time where Capcom was – I mean, they did – if you really think about it, and it certainly wasn't all positive, they did everything from Bionic Commando to Devil May Cry to Street Fighter to crossovers. Uh, They did the new RPG. um, uh, What was it? Dragon's Dogma. I mean, they did a lot last generation. Uh, Dead Rising was a new IP. Lost Planet. I mean, Jesus, this is off the top of my head.
1: They, they, they picked up, like, um, Remember Me and some yeah, games like that. Right. Uh,
0: yeah, that's right. And some of that not too long ago. But this generation where we're about getting it close to eight months in, and with the exception of Dead Rising 3, I don't think they've put anything out.
1: No, no. And there is, you even talk about, like, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's just them. Throwing people off or but they'll talk about like you know, can they even afford to put Street Fighter Four on the new consoles or not? And they talk about you know the company being sold to somebody else and stuff like that. And it's um, it's it's you know, I was thinking back the day I was I was thinking back, and I I kind of miss the era when you know a company could just be like a team of of six or seven people, right. And just put a game together, like because you think back uh, on, and I'm, I'm not saying that I necessarily want to go back to like the eight bit era. You know, I I love where games have come, but I just miss that sense of kind of excitement and adventure. Like we talked before about you know CES, right? The, the, those screenshots. Like I miss that era of where a game could come out and you just didn't know what it would be, and I I feel like. You know, I mean, Capcom, I think, took a lot of chances with games last generation, right. and they just got beat down for it. Like, whether or not people like DMC, like, I I liked DMC, but I know a lot of people didn't. But they still took a chance, and then they, they, they tried to do something different with it and tried to give it a fresh start and stuff. They tried that with Lost Planet, tried with Bionic Commando, tried Dark Void, tried, you know, all these different kind of games, and just... So many of them, those just like failed, you know? And you have games like Tearaway come out that is just fantastic. And that game sells just a pitiful amount of copies.
0: Do you think it's like, the, the average gamer or the, or the, or at least the internet gamers? Do you think they're talking out of both ends of their mouths when they cry for innovation and then in reality they want the same thing over and over?
1: I think there's, I think there's some of that. I think there's some of, you know, I think sometimes we don't put our money where our mouth is, where, like, the Operation Rainfall stuff, right? I wonder how much that stuff actually sold in the end of, end of the day. You know, because everybody was bitching about one of those games to come over, but then how many copies did they actually sell? I mean, I think they sold pretty well, but, like, I don't know the exacts. Um, I think it's just that, that part of it is games, just there's so much involved with making a game now, you know? And um, you think just about, like... You know, Grand Theft Auto, like how much money goes into that and how big of a production that is. And it comes out and people are are, are will be like, oh, I was missing this feature or that feature, <laughs> or, you know, like little things. But, I mean, look, I do it too because the more you give us, the more we were going to expect, right. right? So that's why I think part of me is like I miss the simple days where there were very hard and fast limits on what a game could be, you know, because you only had so many sprites you could use. You only had, you know, two real dimensions. You only had so many colors. And so you can have a small team, a small budget. And they can make a game and go out and sell, you know, 100,000 copies and be a blockbuster. And so I kind of I kind of miss that because I'm I i, I I'm worried that we're getting to a point where we're going to lose the innovation. At the same time, though, we are getting that innovation still in some ways, like indie gaming and other platforms. So, But that, too. Like our whole conference you know, today was about are there too many events, right? Are, are there too many game platforms? Uh, right now? Yeah. Are there too many ways to play games?
0: I would say when it comes to the big three, you know, we've been used to that for quite some time. Uh, I think the casual consumer would say, yes, there should be one unified platform. But what I feel makes it seem like there's a lot more going on now than ever is the advent of smartphones so between smartphones the big 3 and then you still have last gen hanging on longer than a generation arguably ever has since maybe the famicom days so there's a lot of stuff out there and
1: and you have you have pc you have Ouya, you have fire tv you have amazon right. i mean uh, uh, google's new box you potentially have the Apple TV playing video games.
0: You know what I feel like? I feel like if we're to make a comparison, I feel like this time frame right now is similar to when we had, like, the, on the cusp of change when you had, like, there was SNES and Genesis, but then you had 3DO, Jaguar. If we're getting technical, you had, like, Philips CDI for a moment, 3DO. Like, it was that weird spot before things right. smoothed out again, right. you know? So like there's a lot of stuff you could look at and you even knew at the time, like you knew all of that wasn't lasting. So maybe in some ways, you know, it's similar. It's similar in terms of we've seen similar before, but also I would say there are more gamers shock. There are more gamers now than ever due to how mainstream it is. But the other big factor to tie back around to some of the stuff we were discussing earlier, as big as gaming has gotten, ironically, with the exception of the handheld market. Japan is no longer the the force it once was, you know. In gaming's what golden age, if you want to call it that, or whatever.
1: Well, what I know is the future of gaming is mobile phones, and it makes me want to slip my wrist.
0: Do you feel? And this is me putting blinders on. Like I know it's obvious on paper that that's the answer, but do you feel in your heart? Do you still feel smartphone gaming is that's
1: um i i am i am getting worried (laughs) i am i am legitimately getting worried when 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 square enix releases dragon quest eight eight on the smartphone and you play it with your phone in the the vertical position (laughs) and you just touch everything that is a sign of the end times my friend that is a sign that there is no going back to the, to the once great land we used to have.
0: I will say this. With the amount of stuff you and I currently own or our collections, you know, we have enough to last us a lifetime. With that being said, and I have to watch my words, if gaming truly became all mobile, I don't want to say I would ditch the hobby for the first time in my life. But I think it would be safe to say that gaming, for the first time, pretty much in my entire life, would be a a much smaller factor in my everyday life. Like whether it be from a research perspective, just going on different sites in my free time, playing games, you know, keeping abreast on the hobby. If it truly went truly total dominant by smartphone, with you know. I think it would be safe to say gaming would not be as big of a part in my life as as it has been for over 25 years.
1: Yeah, and and I mean, I know it's easy if sometimes I am to sit here and kind of get, like, stuck up about it and say, like, oh, more mobile gaming aren't real games. I'm not saying that, and I don't want to disparage anybody who plays games on mobile devices, but I I want to play real games, and... Real games, most of the time, need some kind of control mechanism to them. Right. And I have seen almost no examples of a control mechanism that works on a touch-based smartphone. Now, every now and then, you get, like, a Space Invaders Infinity gene that can be a really great game with, with touch controls. But you know what? As soon as you put it on my television and you give me a DualShock 3 to play it with or an Xbox 360 controller, it plays a lot better.
0: <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's true, you know? It's it's true. I think it's – I don't know.
1: And I can just see like the Apple TV becoming a gaming device and then the controller being your smartphone. And that makes me just want to – so I strangle myself because I have seen – Almost no example where you can show me that any kind of just touch screen controls work properly.
0: And I think I'm trying to think at the heart what the heart of the problem is with what we're saying in terms of the hobby, like as gamers, it's like, well, what what is really so bad about that? Or you know, people just want to have fun and even if they play here and there, but having played for so many years and knowing what a, a game is supposed to feel like, whether it be through, uh, everything from the advancements from the D pad via game and watch to analog, uh, or, uh, innovations via the N64 controller, rumble pack, dual shock. I mean, there's been so many advancements for legitimate reasons to get where we are now. And then to kind of go back, not even go back. It's just a completely different way to play but there's no more accuracy. Like It all comes down to accuracy and control. And I think it goes back to one of the earliest sayings in gaming in that if the game doesn't play well, if the game doesn't control well, it won't last. And the uh, the weird thing is is that all of these games aren't playing well with that control mechanism and the industry is still surviving. And maybe that's because of the $0.99 cent or microtransaction ordeal. But like, look at it this way. I mean – could you imagine trying to control Super Mario Brothers without the, without the NES control pad?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, No, no, no. You, you know what it'd be? It'd be like, you're on your screen, you have a, a virtual button for left and a virtual button for right, and a virtual jump button, and, and then you, you, you tilt your your phone more to make Mario run.
0: It's not the same. I think, you know, I think... No, of course it's not the same. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I get that, but it's like, you know, if that's all we ever had, I don't know, but it's... It's, um... But you know, no, because people bitch for a long time, because, look, look,
1: I, the tar 2600 came out, right, had one button. One, one joystick, one right. button. That was your entire experience, right. right? All of a sudden, the NES comes out. Oh, my God, it's got four buttons. Well, okay, to be fair, there was Vision and Television and everything, I know, but... Uh, NES comes out, it's got four buttons now. You got two action buttons, and it's select and start. And uh, Genesis comes out, and it's got, it's got three buttons at first, but later on, it's got seven buttons, and the Super Nintendo comes out, and it's got uh, eight buttons, yeah. you know? And there's just more and more buttons, so people are like, there's just too many buttons on these controllers, you're giving me too many buttons, now the solution is we get no buttons. <laughs> so thanks, everyone. Thanks for bitching. We now have no buttons because of you. <laughs> like, like, look, you, you know what needs to happen, and, and I don't know how this happens, and not even, like, I don't know if this is even a good solution, but there needs to be like, some sort of technology where, like, the, the actual pixels of the screen can raise up and be, like, tactile. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, that you know? would be a,
0: a crazy innovation. But, yeah, I know what you're saying.
1: To actually make buttons and D-pads and everything. But even then, still, you know, like, the, the thing that gets me the most is just you're you're sitting here playing games on your phone. And your, your fingers are just, like, all over the screen. So they're covering, like, a third of the play... It's covering
0: area. up gaming real estate so yeah. to speak. You're exactly right. So your thumbs are now hiding portions of the screen that you'd normally be able to to see. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'll say this before we uh before we sign out. Let me do a I'll do a plug here and then I'm going to throw we have a few topics lined up for the future. I'm going to throw one out that we didn't discuss. I'm not going to re- oh. uh, I'm not going to reveal all this stuff we've discussed, but Okay. So obviously, as we start to close out episode two of the generic video game podcast, I want to thank all of the listeners once again. And uh, not only can you catch us, uh, I believe we may be on iTunes. I don't know if we've made it there yet.
1: Well, we 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 are we. There's not a separate feed, but we are definitely. This is definitely part of the main morning radio feed on iTunes. So um, you just go to radio dot dot com. Uh, it's it's there, and you can get subscribe to the whole entire feed i think if we get a couple more shows and we know for sure we're gonna keep doing this then we'll have our own okay
0: that's fine that's fine so i was just going to throw a plug there so check out radio.morningproject.com just like it sounds you can catch myself anthony on twitter at the number two the number four bit aje that's 24 bit aje don't forget to check out shidoshi uh, on twitter that's at pico p-i-k-o-e-r-i and uh, check out the whole family of Morning Project Feed Burners podcasts everything from the nichiest podcast to Miranda's sweet shop to even our very own generic video game podcast so
1: and you know I do is I'll I'll put in um I'll come up with an email address for us I'll put it in the show notes for this so if you want to email us there will be an email address you can you can send it to Oh,
0: okay awesome so. and then uh, I want to thank you for the positive fan feedback. We had several comments on the morning project site. We got some feedback via Twitter. Uh, a couple interesting tweets one of them i didn 't know if it was a legitimate account or not, but it must have been legitimate as play magazine was mentioned but uh, someone wanted us to do a show uh discussing the history of play magazine but uh, outside
1: oh you know i got a I got an email uh, about Something we talked about last episode, which, of course, now I can't get to. Let me see if I can get to it because it's on my other computer. I can't use my computer for recording this for some reason. But let me see if I can find it while you're talking about anything So, So what I'll
0: say is uh, as we continue to plug along at radio.morningproject.com. Uh, as an aside, uh, we've now discussed our first episode, got great feedback discussing SNK, a lot of diehard Neo Geo fans out there, uh, discussing it on Facebook, Twitter, the site. Um, this evening, discussing uh, generalization of E3, CES, uh, its roots, the expansion of those shows, various opinions. Uh, One of the topics for the future, not saying episode three, but a topic that Shidoshi has discussed in the past, whether it be in magazine form, website form, uh, I think it's maybe now more pertinent than ever. That being creating video games while we have a lack of innovation right now, something that needs to be innovated, is maybe creating a game that doesn't just focus solely on killing. And that's not something I ever thought that I would say because I'm so used to action games. Uh, it's so ingrained in us. I love uh, action games, over-the-top violence. I'm first in line. But with games like Persona integrating the the dating style aspect, the social networking aspect, uh, with the dude bro, uh, the FPS genre, the military aspect hitting an all-time high uh, for some innovation uh, to come forth, why not create something that focuses more, whether it be on character development or – uh, the characters in the game, world exploration um, that doesn 't always have to always fall back on killing your opponent
1: you know I so before this show, we were talking about games we played recently, As Anthony, like he mentioned earlier that I was playing murdered soul suspect um, there is There is no killing of well I mean you get killed when the game starts, so I guess you get killed, uh, but beyond that there 's no real killing you don 't kill people in the game. Uh, there are demons that you can attack, but you can actually; those are very few encounters, and you can actually go around them instead of killing them. So the the game mostly is based about just like character development and exploration and um, uncovering what the 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 story of your murder and things like that. So I I think games sometimes do try to go out and do something a little bit different like that, and I really appreciate it when they, when they do. You know, like, I I like those games that can do things. Without falling back on, go out and slaughter a bunch of you know people.
0: <laughs> and I almost want to say it was harder to find versus other publications. Did do you feel the same way? Yeah, I see. The problem is I don't. I don't really.
1: I I didn't really know of Game Informer too much until it really became be a big thing.
0: Oh, like during the like the GameStop years.
1: Yeah, because I never really followed the magazine at that point. I mean, because I, what that was. Uh, so that, I mean that when I was really when I would really would have really been coming up, would have been right when I was out of high school, and I don't remember at that point we didn't have any fun codes in my area, and then of course I was, you know, big into Game Fan at right. that point. Um, cause, I mean Game Fan was funny because I just like found it one day at a store. I think it was a Electronics Boutique at the time. And it was just like, I like whoa, what is this crazy magazine? And so I took it home and, and just loved it. So I kind of like focused in on, on Game Fan at that point. So I didn't really read a lot of other magazines. It's,
0: I don't know how many times I can put this magazine over. I'm sure it's not the last time. But I got to tell you, the, from whatever the first issue of Game Fan I picked up was, and, and it was early on. I mean, right away, as a gamer, you knew. I mean, am I am I yeah. talking crazy talk? Like the no. second you opened that magazine and you looked at it, you knew that that magazine was no joke in terms of the gamer. Now, sure, you can look back at some of the layouts now; some of them might look funny. Or oh, no, 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 not right.
1: Okay, if you look back, look, the layouts were atrocious. The writing was god awful. You know, I mean, there were some very questionable scores <laughs> given to some very questionable games. But no, like the the thing thing about it, I mean, it's it's. It's kind of like what would these days be like—a Tumblr blog or uh, a podcast. It was you—you you got it, and you were like, "These people
0: love." That was games. that was the magic ingredient right there. You said it. That was
1: yeah, and, and it was easy to read some other magazines. And I mean, look, look. Obviously, now I work for them, but you know, you'd read like EGM, right? And they'd have like the the, the review scores. And they would just be, like, so snarky or so kind of bitter-sounding about games and stuff like that, you know? But you got game fan, and it was like, oh, my God, games are awesome, was kind of, like, their take on things. And you're like, yeah, games are awesome. And then you're, you're looking at these gigantic screenshots that you've never seen before anywhere else in a quality that you had never seen before, you know? And, and all these kind of things they were doing, and, like... And remember, they they would do like the like eight shots in a row to kind of show you like the animation. Oh, like, or they know, do it or on or the borders you know?
0: around the page.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or they they like take a bunch of shots of one something and, and put them together to make one big. Like you would see that in like EGM and stuff, but it always seemed like they were like photographs, and you could see like the cut lines and stuff. But in EGM, they were it was just like one gigantic image they had pieced together. Um, like one of my, like you know, I mean, like, to to give you an example, like a story, and I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but. Um, someone was telling the story of, of when Nick was making one of his Resident Evil layouts. Oh,
0: I, I, I know this from warning.
1: Yeah, so so for anybody who doesn't like, so, so Nick takes and makes like hot cocoa mix, right? And dips his hand in it and puts a piece of paper on the wall and like slams his hand against the wall under on the, the paper. And does this a few times. And what he was doing was he was like getting like, trying to look like bloody handprints to put in the background of his layout. I mean, like that's, that's how hardcore we got, you know, when they got and then when I got there, I got into, like, really making this magazine. So it was just, like, this this thing of love the entire time. And you you when you read it, you liked it because, I mean, obviously it was slanted towards people who like Japanese gaming, you know. But it was the thing of just, like, games are awesome and we want to share this awesomeness with you. It, there was this no, no, like, jadedness, no, you know, oh... Here's what all, all that's wrong with gaming. And to some point, you know, that can be a problem because you're not really looking at the real
0: issues with right. certain
1: games. But but it was just like you were excited to read every issue.
0: Yeah, I don't know. That that, that time period was just so uh, – it, it was so different, so special, you know. Uh, one more quick magazine I'll, I'll do a weird mention of. I don't think we've ever discussed it on the air anywhere, but I know we have in private. But another magazine that I thought would quote last, kind of with the game, not the game fan style appeal in terms of doing the same thing, but in terms of being unique, I really thought Game On USA would last more than seven issues. Yeah, totally different um, time. To, to, that's during the An America yeah. years. Like, if there are any fans, that, and right. I used to like An America. Oh yeah, but that's Game On USA was actually. kind of like a dream come true because not only did you get manga, you know, the, from the anime world. But then the the bit of information you got in that magazine was gaming related. I was like, oh man, that was like, I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, I think the, I think they just they like, they just put too much manga in there, you know. And I think it was an interesting test right. that just didn't work out. And I think too because they didn't really have the connections in the gaming industry. Um, because it was basically you know an anime magazine trying to do game stuff. They just didn't know the directions they should take things and didn't have the access that they really needed
0: at that point. Were you in California when you dabbled in
1: I I so I um I ended up writing for them under a couple different names because I had started working for uh GameFan. Mm-hmm. At one point I was in I was in back in Nebraska first when I was freelancing for them doing like just a review here or there stuff. Cause it's so, it's so funny. Cause they, they actually, they had these little caricatures of people and they had one of me, but they made me blonde <laughs> and that kind of, because they had, they, I think the guy just had no idea what I looked right. like. And so it drove me crazy. That I was blonde in the magazine. Um, but then I moved to California for, I think about midway through game On's short run, I moved to California for game fan but I wanted to keep writing for Game On, so I had to use different names. And it's funny because the first paycheck I ever got I, – I just like – it made me laugh because I could not believe they actually did this. So the first <laughs> paycheck I ever got from Game On was was pay to the order of Shibosh. <laughs> and I'm like, didn't somebody accounting like think about that? Then they stopped this for a second and be like, wait a minute. I don't think Shidoshi is like a real legal name, like unless this guy, this guy, this person, like Madonna or somebody, you know. So they they sent me that check. I couldn't cash it, so I had to like I tried talked to to the guy in charge, Jason, and I'm like, look, Jason, I hate to do this, but you guys sent me a check to Shidoshi, and I obviously can't cash that. So I still have that check somewhere. Um, but no, yeah, I, I was I was really I was really heartbroken when Game One died because I I I felt like. Obviously, it was nowhere near the same level as a game no. fan, but I, I did feel like there was like actual passion to try to do something right. different and 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 fun instead of just okay let 's pump out a magazine covering the biggest stuff there is out there mm. you know and they, they 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 did come to me and be like, "Okay, what kind of stuff do you want to do?" you know so.
0: one more shout out. you know, I never really give this publication uh, like i 'm always reminiscing you know about game fan in the old days of e g m you know what magazine I'll give credit that I enjoyed for at least two to three years hmm. was PSM.
1: I, I – yeah, and I can't – I don't know the guy's name, but you, you'll know what I'm talking about, like the guy who did like all those covers. Yeah, for and it was man. for
0: different reasons. Like they didn't have they, – they didn't have the best screenshots. They, it, the paper stock wasn't the greatest, but everything else they did – was you know it was passionate they did the unique covers where they had artists from within the industry whether it be comics or gaming they would insert the here's another relic for you memory card stickers or cd lids i love those yep uh once again getting back it we're getting to the notion of uniqueness uh a unique take on things not being cookie cutter and that magazine for being console specific uh was fantastic
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I I really liked uh PSM for a while. I I was actually a big fan of the official Dreamcast magazine. Yeah, that was
0: short lived, yeah. Yeah. While it
1: lasted. Um I mean it was always did you ever read video game and computer entertainment? A
0: long ass time ago, yes.
1: That always felt like I felt like my dad was supposed to be reading it or something. <laughs> I like I I I, I always feel like I was like twenty years too young to be reading it. I don't know, like it just it, it, the write, the writing always interested me, but it was always this kind of thing where like you know you're a young kid and you sneak into somewhere like a, where adults are, <laughs> and they're letting you like like drink coffee, right? You know, typically at home the adults tell you you can't drink coffee because coffee is for adults. But you're out somewhere and they're like, oh, you, you know, you, would you like a cup of coffee? We'll give you a cup of coffee. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm an adult. This is awesome. And you're sitting there like drinking your coffee and you, it, it sucks and it's bitter and you don't like the taste. But you're drinking it because you're like an adult now and that's how you feel. Like that's what that magazine was. And so I, I loved reading that for that reason. And, and yeah, there's like so many different magazines. Yeah, there. there's,
0: there's a there. lot of crazy there's, stuff. you know. And speaking of hardcore, something that I have no real knowledge of but I would see on uh, shelves – You want to talk about a dedicated audience. What about the people that would import or buy the UK mags dedicated to the Amiga? Yeah. I I mean, talk about a crowd. Talk about loyal and and going above and beyond. I mean, that's a whole other animal.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I I was never a a computer person, so I never understood the whole computer stuff. But, yeah, the Amiga people were the really weird people that (laughs) I didn't – know what they were doing and why and, and like that you know
0: but I, I was very uh, here's, a, here's a story I was very close to getting an Amiga Amiga 500 at one time in my life I was little like between the ages of 10 and 12 and I remember I, I wound up not getting it and I'm not the type of person to cry <laughs> you know but I gotta tell you I still remember I cried when I didn't get the uh, the Amiga I wanted one so bad you have no idea. But, uh, yeah, what a, another another crazy time, another era in gaming gone by, you know? You know what's insane is I think on a technicality, do you know that I dare say the Amiga name still exists? I, I, I was going to say, I, I feel like, didn't they do a...
1: Was it Commodore? Yeah, someone got the Commodore name. Yeah, someone. They were doing something with that recently.
0: So I believe by name the Amiga still exists to this day. But yeah, I remember in uh, high school I took two computer graphics classes. And while they were outdated at the time before the advent of the new Macs, the, uh, the systems that I had experience on were the old Amiga 500 and 1000s. But you're right, not to stereotype and judge people, but the pe- some of the people in that class or the people that were Amiga buffs were, even by my standards, being a nerd and weird myself, even they were a little bit out there. My
1: dad wanted, wanted us to get an
0: Adam. Wow, I remember the name, but I'm I don't th- remember much. much.
1: Trying to th- I'm trying to think of, I don't even know who that came Oh, Wow. Yes. So that, that would have been a wise investment on our part if we got an Adam. <laughs> um, my, my, my dad wanted us to get an Adam, and he wanted me to speak Spanish. That was two of his big pieces of advice to me. I, I followed <laughs> neither one of them.
0: Uh, Yes. So, yeah. Hmm. There you go. Well, I think this, uh, the, this episode of the generic video game podcast went from uh, generic to anything but.
1: Yeah, we we, went, we covered like a number of different things in yeah. this one. I don't remember what our first thing was. What, what did we talk about before we did convention stuff?
0: Uh, we talked about oh, – primarily it was with uh, traveling within the industry from an insider's perspective.
1: Oh, yes.
0: 20-hour yes. flights.
1: Yes, that's yeah.
0: right. Yeah. Uh, globe.
1: But, you know, you know that the, the, the convention conversation wasn't as bad as I feared it might no. be. It was, I thought it was fun. We were able
0: to spice it up a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting topic. I said I think that so, so many times we talk about like what we saw at the events, so we don't talk about the event itself. Well,
0: I like not only did we pose an issue slash problem, but we even offered a solution.
1: We did. See, we're not just bitching about things; we're trying to also <laughs> fix things.
0: So, until next time, everybody, we thank you for listening to the generic video game podcast, and we hope you'll join us again for episode three. Send us your feedback. Look for the email in the show notes and don't forget to check out and tell all of your friends about radio.morningproject.com. Good